0: The Jodcast, bringing you the best of the UK National Astronomy meeting with David Boyce, Chris Lintot, Stuart Lowe, and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast, NAM edition. Okay, hello and welcome to the Jodcast in Belfast. We've been here for a whole week, it's been incredibly busy. Um, joining me is Nick. Yes, hello everybody. We've also got Chris Lintot. Hello. And we've got David Boyce from the University of Leicester. So welcome, everyone. How's the week been for for all of you? Exhausting. Tiring.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's been very, very good. I mean, as we've mentioned in previous um, episodes or previous segments, uh, there's been uh, uh, an uptake of uh, attendance to this conference by Factor 2. I mean, they planned to have 320 people come, and they had 648, apparently. So the interest of the community is uh, certainly alive and well. You know what's scary about that?
2: I thought I knew all the astronomers in this country, but <laughs> where, where did six hundred come from?
0: Where have they been hiding? Came out of the woodwork, and apparently, that's only half of the UK astronomy community. So really? Like. Yeah. Funny. So, who were the other half? <laughs> <laughs>
1: And will they all be here at the next one? Yeah. And as noted by you know, several of the uh, more elderly members of the RAS, that it was wonderful to see that the audience was comprised largely of young people. I'm not sure how they define young, whether I count myself as a young person, but I mean, certainly you look around and there was certainly many uh, PhDs, masters and, and young postdocs. So
3: There was a large number of people from Northern Ireland, surprisingly, which perhaps <laughs> don't get to some of the, uh, the let say, mainland UK NAMS, but uh, I think that was a good thing, because it meant that you, you could talk and, and get in conversations with people that perhaps were doing something very similar to you, that you, you didn't know existed, because you probably hadn't met them before.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's important, actually, being, be, being in the internet era, and you've got email and other forms of you know, communication, which yeah, sounds great on you know, on the face of it, however, it's always nice to put a face behind the name, mm-hmm. or an email Definitely. address, or something yeah. like that, so you can go, oh, that's what you look like. And... No, but the highlight for me was having lunch with a guy named Phil Murray, who's
2: the Galaxy Zoo web designer. Um, and I've been in the same room as him briefly once, <laughs> and we said hello. So this is the first time we'd had a chat. And hit the success of, of my crazy project it was entirely down to him. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but now the problem is that not only it was good to spend time with him, but now I owe him for building the website, and now I owe him lunch as well because he <laughs> insisted that as the guest I could possibly buy it. So maybe next year.
0: I hmm. was going to say, Nick, you mentioned the RAS uh, Now, for people who don't know, that's the Royal Astronomical Society. Mm-hmm. And you caught up with President of the Royal Astronomical Society early one in the week. Yes, that's right. And uh, it was great to chat with uh, Professor Michael Rowan Robertson. And
1: uh, here's what he had to say. This is essentially your meeting, isn't it? Well, yes, it's,
4: it, it's the, the RAS NAM, and uh, it's a great event. I mean, it, the, we've obviously, the RAS has been holding these annual meetings for quite a while now but this is easily the biggest so that's that's great um one of the the things that i think is great about the nam is that there's such a tremendous turnout from from young researchers, postgrads, and postdocs.
1: Certainly um, true. You look around the room, or certainly the session yeah. that, that, that I've uh, been yeah. in so far, is that you look around and think, oh, it's awfully. There's not too many grey hairs around you. Know. Well,
4: that's something we've been working on. That was some of, one of the things I was a bit disappointed about the last SNAM, which I came to, which also was very good, the one in Preston. And I felt that although we were getting there with the, the turnout from the young astronomers, we, we'd, we weren't really having such a good turnout from for more senior astronomers, actually, I think it's much better this time. I mean, I think there is there are a lot of senior people here, and and certainly there will be over the week. And um, we seem to have a particularly good set of plenary lectures, very good set of plenary lectures, mm. which should attract people and lots lots of very good sessions and so on. So I think obviously our goal is to make it the the, the meeting that everybody needs to be at every year. <laughs> the and essential meeting but for two. Th- I mean, if you compare with the AAS where. They perhaps they have achieved that in a way, that everybody, everybody in the US goes to the This
1: is the American National American Society. Astronomical
4: mm. Society meeting. The, the two features that make it a must-attend conference are that it's the, job for, it's the job forum, basically, where people go to hire new people and therefore yes. want to see the young people in action. And secondly, it's a great opportunity that the media are there, and so it's a great opportunity to publicise your work. Now, we, I think we are beginning to get there on both fronts that essentially this is seen as a place where young people can be seen by those who might like to hire them, consider hiring them. And also, I think that the, the press coverage is definitely improving every time. So.
1: I think we're getting there. For the young astronomers, though, it's yeah. terribly, terribly scary for the first time to stand up in front of the entire UK community <laughs> and present their research. I mean, yeah. the jitters, I have to say, you know yeah. are, <laughs> are pretty intense.
4: Yes, that's absolutely right. The, the, um, the YAM meeting, Young Astronomers Meeting, is quite nice in that respect in that it's entirely organised by the PhD students mm. and it's mainly aimed at each other. Although, of course, they do want want everybody else to come as well, if possible. It is intimidating. I think, of course, it's up to groups to, as it were, train young people in giving talks, give them the opportunity to give talks within the group. So So it's not such a big shock to come and give a talk. Yes, so I hope it isn't the first time they've ever given a talk. (laughs) Probably
1: not. So the Royal Astronomical Society was founded when? 1820. 1820.
4: It's the oldest. Yes. Yes, yes, easily the oldest. And uh, it's also, um, apart from the American Astronomical Society, it's easily, easily the largest... Astronomical Society because we have 3,300 members. It's actually the it has it's actually the la- apart from the International Astronomical Union. It is the largest international society. We have a thousand overseas members, and mm. that is more even than the American Astronomical Society has. It's quite a unique organisation.
5: How can RAS. people
1: get involved with the RAS? I mean, we have this vision yeah. of the RAS being um, comprised of, of senior astronomers who do senior oh, well, work, but you're saying that we've got a lot of uh, no, no,
4: no. We, our goal is to get to have as members everybody, including the postgrads, postgrads, postdocs, academics, we'd like to have really high proportion of the community and, uh, members. Because we have this fantastic offer for postgrads that the first year of membership is costs £1. We well, can't
1: get any better than you that, can't. can we?
4: Really? No, no, I don't know why they don't all <laughs> sign up immediately. It's,
1: but uh, yes, it, it's. So if you're postdoc listening, th- th- come on,
4: you've got to. You've well, postdocs is a bit more, but uh, yeah, we do need them oh. to join. And the thing is that. Really, especially as the RAS is becoming more political, more involved in science policy, and so on, we need to be able to feel we're speaking on behalf of the community, and therefore we need the community to be with us and join us.
1: Yes, there's a certain degree of stewardship of the the, um, the study itself. Uh, I yeah. imagine you are a representative of the the main society for astronomy in the UK, and as you yes. say, there's a lot of uh, international uh, membership as well. So. Yeah your voice, or the society's voice, is being heard more and more in political circles. It is,
4: and it's very gratifying that we are are listened to. The media are certainly very responsive to press releases we put out and so on. And so we, um, also, in government also, we can get in and speak to people. So I think we we are quite potentially a powerful organisation, but of course we do need the support of the members.
1: What are the sort of issues that the society wants to make... uh, or wants to exert some influence over at policy level?
4: Well, we, we, we want to keep making the case for funding of pure research, blue sky research. Um, it's always tough because governments like to see a return from their investment, mm. and so the investment in, they think the investment in science should show the benefit to the economy in some way. I think you can argue that astronomy and its related sciences, you know, solar system science, uh, uh, space science etc um, they do they do bring a benefit in some cases it's reasonably direct in that there are some applications that amazingly quickly end up uh, uh, in, in use but generally the influence is more through the people that we train in physics departments the fact that we draw children into science at school and we draw students into, f- into doing physics so that I think is perhaps our big contribution to the economy so we have to keep arguing that Because at the present time, the last six months, the the, um, issue has been astronomy funding and the the fact that the current allocation in this spending review has been rather unfavourable. And so that's the thing we've been campaigning on, campaigning on very strongly and quite effectively, I think, although things are still not sorted by
1: any means. There's a special uh, session at this meeting, yeah. indeed, where we hear from representatives from yes. SCFC.
4: absolutely. I know, that, I know that lots of people are looking forward
1: to this in a grim sort of way. I'm sure the people who are on the panel are not looking forward to this. Well, I'm sure I think be... they
4: know they've got to face their community and uh, hope they're ready for it.
1: This has always mm. been a... A serious question posed of anybody who pursues astronomy as a career so it's mm. the it's the at a cocktail party question yes. not that we get invited to too many cocktail <laughs> parties but it's the cocktail party question what do you actually do yes and why should we care i mean yes. it's this case of you don't actually produce anything yeah however it's it's very difficult to try and explain to some people that what we do is extremely important in that we are inspiring generation after generation of yeah. scientists
4: well I, you, you say that um people ask that question, because I guess they do and certainly governments do, but I'm always heartened by the fact that um, the public is so supportive of astronomy and when, during this current crisis, when astronomy seems to have been, uh, seems to be under attack it's amazing how much public concern there is about that and um, this has kept, kept the story in the media for the past months we wouldn't be able to do that if there wasn't support, I think the thing is people really do find it Interesting. They find it inspiring. They regard this as something that human beings have to do, and you know, we should be doing in the UK. I think that's great, and I think the only difficulty is justifying the actual amount that we spend on astronomy. Because if you say, well, okay, we accept the case, there should be astronomy, there should be some support for it. The trouble is, what is the level of support? There should be. And then you start getting into well, there should be the international subscriptions, there should be instrumentation to support ESA and ESO, European Mm. Space Agency, European Southern Observatory. And then we need grants and so on to support what happens in the university. And you end up with the sort of budget that we have. And so I think, although it's a lot of money that goes into astronomy, I think the public do support us being funded.
1: There is a feeling that astronomy is a worthy subject. A worthy study to be funded at the levels that is currently being funded at even by people who seem to think that all we do is produce pretty pictures (laughs) from the Hubble Space Telescope they can see that this is inspirational.
4: I think they know that there's more to it than just pictures because they've heard about black holes they hear about dark matter they hear about now they hear about dark energy they hear about exoplanets they know that new discoveries are being made and these are, are on Topics that sort are of really interesting: the nature of the universe we live in, the origin of life, and and solar systems, and so on. So, I think it's um, you know we 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 uh, we're lucky that the media do give a lot of coverage to astronomy, and it allows us to, to tell people what we're doing. Astronomers are very good at that, actually. Um, we have we have some excellent work going on in in um, education and outreach. Uh, we've got sessions going on here at the moment. And there's some great programs going on, putting across the
1: public what astronomy what, what is about. Certainly, right. that's what we're interested in. I mean, we, when we look at the program for this meeting, it's mm. crammed full of most fantastic science, yeah. and they're all parallel sessions. Which yes. Unfortunately, if you ran them in series, would take probably a couple of weeks. Yes. And we can't take the time off our research to do that. Yeah. although I'm sure we'd, we'd enjoy it. Yeah. So we're trying to split ourselves over, we'd yes. like to split ourselves over five yes. parallel sessions yes. so we can cover everything. So yeah. we, we hope that difficult. we can uh, put, yeah. it, put no, as I've much been, of it out there as we I've can. I've been
4: torn between sessions already yes <laughs>
1: <laughs> let's talk a little bit more again about how young people can get involved with yeah. the society and we're talking about folk who are at school who might be amateur yes. astronomers in their uh, own right yes maybe studying physics mathematics uh, yeah. at school how can they get involved in the society
4: uh well um we don't only have professional members um we do we do have a quite a big membership of enthusiasts as it were that they're both uh, some of them are amateur astronomers serious amateur astronomers some of them are people who write about astronomy Uh, we have a number of school teachers who keen on astronomy so we do we do have members of this kind we are we are looking at the idea of trying to create a more extended category of membership which might be something like friends of astronomy or something where we would for a smaller subscription than, than, than the actual actual joining the full Society, which isn't cheap, and people would get a magazine and, and public lectures and so on, that uh, and be able to identify with the, with the, with our work. So we're we're, we're looking at that. We, we I, I certainly would like to see us have a broader support than just the professional astronomers i know that i know the public are keen Mm -hmm. and there's this project that that has been organized called the galaxy zoo oh yes chris lintoff has has been very strongly involved with this and he's going to talk about it at the meeting where members of the public were invited to log on to a web page and classify galaxies and and over a hundred thousand people participated in that so those are the people we think i think we should be trying to draw in to support astronomy a little bit more actively we'd love to do that
1: in the last couple of minutes, can you tell us how you got into astronomy?
4: Ah, that's an interesting question. Actually, I, see, I didn't really do astronomy when I was, when I was uh, school, at school. I didn't have a telescope or anything like that. I was really into mathematics, and I did a mathematics degree. But while I was doing that, I read a wonderful book by Fred Hoyle called Frontiers of Astronomy, in, w- in which he laid out all the unsolved questions of astrophysics and cosmology all the way from the solar system to the largest scale. And I think that was what hooked me, really, that book. And so I I decided that's what I wanted to do. I started off as a sort of theorist, but I gradually got interested in actually trying to get data to to test theories. And so I have worked with lots of ground-based telescopes around the world in in different wavelengths, bands, and also with space missions. So I feel I've done a bit of everything. (laughs) really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you very, very much indeed for your time. Thank you. So that was Michael Rowan-Robinson telling us all about NAM and the RAS. Many people were visitors
1: to the Royal Astronomical Meeting this year. And uh, Stuart, you caught up with a random bunch of students who appeared to be visiting for the day.
0: I did uh, the Astronomy Education and Outreach Session. Um, We had lots of people visiting who were planetarium operators, who were working in schools or education. Um, And we did have some teachers and some pupils from Northern Ireland, from a school just south of Belfast, the Glen Lola Collegiate School and um, they gave an excellent talk actually um, this is what they had to say So here we are at the outreach and education session of the National Astronomy Meeting and I'm joined by Jackie Milligan and the pupils of the Glen Lola Collegiate School and you've been talking about astronomy in school so Jackie just to start tell us what it is that you've been doing
6: uh, was well, the novel thing that we've been doing is using the Fox Telescope because before that, most astronomy is a lot of theory, just looking at solar system planets and the theory behind TCSC physics. So now the girls have been using Fox Telescope, which they've been using one in Hawaii, and it is actually operational during the school day, which is fabulous. That's very so good, just. Isn't it? Yes, so the eleven hours time difference, whatever it is, we can book the telescope around lunchtime. So it's actually an after school activity, although it's in the middle of the day. <laughs> so we've had the frustrations though, of professional astronomers because we've booked the telescope a couple of times. The girls have done all the planning and nothing has happened because it's been cloudy or much of clouds in Hawaii. Of- <laughs> How could you think of such a thing, I know? So but it's our GCSE students that are doing most of the projects, but they're actually teaching year eight girls as well. So we're in a girl's school, so we really want to promote science. And the girls are fabulous scientists. And my job will be done when they know more than I do. I think I'm nearly there, actually. (laughs) So they're very good on Fox. They know how to use the software now, and that's what I can't do. And they've actually been working through the Student Academy. So it it is independent learning. I haven't been involved in that at all. And a lot of the sessions the girls have had on the telescope... They've been doing their own thing as well. They can now book time by themselves.
0: Okay, so. maybe maybe we'll ask one of these experts, because they are experts, so impressing all of the astronomers here. Um, ask you, what have you been doing with the Fox Telescope?
7: Um, with the Fox Telescope, I've been using it from my started astronomy, and at the minute I, I've been working on some recent projects. Well, one of my last projects was tracking the orbit of a near-Earth asteroid, which was really difficult to do, but we had support and help from the Armand Planetarium. Oh, and so we both, so what
0: sort of things did you do to track it?
7: Um, we took separate pictures through different times, so we would take a picture at say 11 and then one at 11, 10 past 11 and carry on this for a, a good couple of hours and then we would blink the pictures by putting one on top of each other and blinking them to see which star or what the asteroid, which one had moved right. so we could tell which one the asteroid was and then from that we would, could calculate the orbit and say that it wasn't going to crash into the <laughs> earth, which is very lucky and always, great. <laughs> it's
0: nice to know it's not going to crash
7: into It's great us. news.
0: <laughs> There's another of, another of the pupils at Glen Lola Collegiate who's been working on the Falks Academy, I think it's called. Is that right? The Student Academy. Do you want oh, yeah. to tell me a little bit about that?
6: Well, it's just um, currently a pilot programme. It's not actually available for enrolment yet, but um, my friends Sam, Hannah and Dorna and I, we've all had the opportunity to... Enroll and work on what is still the pilot program, or what we call Project One.
0: Very good. And I I saw some pictures of you all in sleeping bags outside for star parties and things.
6: That was observing night. That was a observing night, and we happily had clear skies, and we got to see some key constellations and all that.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you.
2: It's fun to hear about proper results from FOLKS, because they've had such trouble being the first big robotic telescopes and getting those off the ground, but. Wherever you look now, this sort of thing, you've got Falk's of course. You've got to include Sloan, which is the big sky server that makes use of the robotic telescope in New Mexico. I think that came up in almost every session, mm, I sat yes. it, whether it was supernovae or whether it was galaxies or whatever. But the next generation is really impressive, too. And I really enjoyed the talk about PanStars um, from Nick Kaiser. And this is the future of astronomy. And I think one of you, at least, caught up with him.
1: Yep, that was me. I managed to catch hold of uh, Professor Nick Kaiser uh, from the Institute for Astronomy. University of Hawaii, and it's not the Edinburgh one, not the Edinburgh one. No, that's right. This one's <laughs> a slightly warmer, and uh, had a chat about Pan stars. I'm joined now by Professor Nick Kaiser from the Institute for Astronomy in Hawaii, and uh, you're here to talk about a fantastic new telescope project called Pan stars. Tell us a bit about it.
8: Uh, yeah, the uh, PanStars project is being led by the institute I work for, and uh, we managed to get funded by the United States Air Force to build this sucker.
1: They uh, apparently have quite a lot of money to um, <laughs> put towards astronomy. We would, we'd like to know why. Why is, the, why is the U.S. Air
8: Force interested in this? Uh, well, as well as, you know, trying to kill people in Iraq and things like that, they, they actually spend quite a lot of money on basic research. So they just uh, spread it around and do sort of blue skies research and sometimes good things come out of it and
1: sometimes not. Tell us a little bit about the PANSTARS project. I mean, PANSTARS sounds very much like yet another astronomical acronym. <laughs> what does it stand for? Uh, it stands
8: for uh, Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System. So really it's the survey telescope part that we're doing, and then the rapid response is really all the other telescopes on the planet which will be used to follow up the exciting things that we discover going, going bump in the night.
1: <laughs> so what stage is the project?
8: Um, Well, we uh, got funded in 2002, and it's been uh, quite a wild ride since then. And we've managed to get one telescope built so far, and it's uh, almost become operational now, and we're starting to get the first scientific results out of it. So it's very exciting for us.
1: You mentioned the first telescope, so presumably there is going to be more. That's
8: right. We hope to build four of them. And we're going to move them uh, over to Mauna Kea and we're going to tear down the university's existing telescope, uh, much to the chagrin of some of my colleagues, and we're going to put up this new system, which will be about the same size, but it'll have four telescopes inside the enclosure rather than one. And there are also these rather revolutionary telescopes that can survey huge swaths of sky.
1: Why four telescopes? I mean, why couldn't one telescope do the same job?
8: Well, you could build this with one big telescope, but uh, you'd miss out on quite a few advantages. One is that uh, if you build small telescopes, you can build them a lot faster, and we're all getting older, and I want to see this thing uh, (laughs) getting results uh, sooner. The other thing that's an advantage is sometimes when we take pictures of the sky, we see things which we might think are real objects, but are in fact false detections. And if you can take four observations of the same patch of sky at the same time, you don't have that problem.
1: So that's how these telescopes are going to work. They're not going to look at patches of sky next to each other. They're going to look at patches of sky, the same patch of sky.
8: that, that's the plan, yeah.
1: And how can you tell something which is not a real object by, by doing this?
8: Well, what'll happen is it'll only appear in one of the pictures. Then it's a sure sign that it's not real.
1: Okay, so we're talking about, I guess, noise on the CCD or exactly. cosmic rays or something like cosmic that. cosmic rays, yeah. Okay, now what sort of things is this instrument going to be good at looking at?
8: Well almost everything that glows and (laughs) anything that moves anything that's variable and any exploding stars um you know we we build it to be able to detect faint objects and uh, we build it to be able to scan the sky really fast and we'll we're going to operate it in a way which is uh, carefully designed in order to be able to not just detect things which are moving across the sky, but so you can link together the detections and figure out what the orbits of the objects are. So we can find out, for instance, if we've got uh, a killer asteroid.
1: So that's a, major, that's a major key goal of this project, isn't it? I mean, talking about things which are moving, things which, are, which appear to move in your fields, we're talking about near-Earth objects, right? Things which are obviously moving. So we're not talking necessarily about stars which are moving. Which are, yeah. millions of years away or anything like that, we're talking about things which are close to us, so these near-Earth asteroids, essentially. Exactly. How many are you going to expect to see?
8: Um, Well, uh, about 10,000
1: in all. That's amazing. That's quite a lot.
8: Uh, That's right. Well, we'll detect about 10 million main-belt asteroids, but the ones we're really interested in are the near-Earth ones, and for those, we expect about 10,000 over about a 10-year period.
1: Are these East going to be observing the entire sky or just a small section of it? Uh, the, the entire
8: sky, or, or rather three-quarters of the sky, because there's a quarter that we can't access
1: from Monacare. Hmm. Do I see a connection now between uh, the Air Force funding the project and a possibly an external threat of a killer <laughs> asteroid?
8: Um, um, strangely not, no. You know, we're just funded to bril- build and design brilliant technology. The idea is that if there's spin-offs for the military, they can copy our, our detectors and so on and incorporate them into their things. But they're actually not interested in, in any of the, the science we do. There's other people in the military who may have some interest,
1: but not the people we work for. Perhaps some Hollywood directors, maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah. (laughs) What else will Penn Stars be good at looking at other than near-Earth asteroids? Well, this is the beauty of the
8: thing, is that while you're scanning the sky looking for near-Earth asteroids, you see all the more distant asteroids. So people who are interested in those get some science out of it. You also see lots of things in the outer solar system. Then behind that, you'll see a billion stars in our galaxy, and then behind all those stars are all the other galaxies in the universe. So you name it,
1: we're going to see it. That's fantastic. Now, why is it that Penn Stars is going to be particularly good at looking for transient objects?
8: Um, well, it, 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 there's several things. One is that we've got really good observing sites in Hawaii. We get really sharp images, and that means you can detect fainter things. Right. Uh, we've got these fantastic detectors which are much larger than anyone has built before so we can scan the sky much more rapidly so the rate that those two things mean the rate at which we'll detect things is just much higher than anyone else so we're going to see like 10,000 supernovae exploding and the trouble with that is what you want to do every time you see a supernova, you want to go and have a look at it in detail with a 10-meter telescope. And unfortunately, there aren't enough 10-meter telescopes.
9: <laughs> yeah.
1: That's fantastic. So you mentioned that we're getting close to um, having one telescope operational. Yeah. Watch the timeline, when we expect the entire pan network of, of four telescopes operating?
8: 2012. 2012. It's the plan, yeah. Well,
1: that's fantastic. We look forward to hearing more about results from Pan-STARRS.
8: Uh, you're you're going to hear a lot of results. There's <laughs> going to be a lot of discoveries. So watch this space. we
1: Will do. One last question for you. How did you get started in astronomy? Um, well, I wanted to
8: be a high-energy physicist and I did a master's degree at Cambridge but wasn't quite smart enough to get picked up by Stephen Hawking's group but they said to me why don't you go up the street and talk to this guy Martin Rees he might have a place for you and uh, look, and he took me on and uh, that was a very good time to get into astronomy because it was the start of all the, the, the new theories about dark matter dominating the universe and inflation and stuff Everything was just starting to happen, so I really got in on the ground floor there.
1: Fantastic. So, presumably, before that, you wanted to be a high-energy physicist. What drew you towards physics as a as a study? Well, I,
8: I don't know. Uh, it, I'm sure it had something to do with the fact that my dad was a physicist, though before I, I sort of got serious about it, I wanted to be an artist. But... Uh, after going to art school for a year, I discovered I had zero talent. <laughs> and, uh, oh,
1: well, they couldn't teach it then at art school?
8: <laughs> it took me a while to figure it out. I was slow on the uptake. But I'll tell you something, the thing that really turned me on is a good friend of mine, his brother dropped out of college. He had these physics books, and he gave one to me. And it was Volume 1 of Feynman's Lectures on Physics. Oh, yes. And I started reading this book, and I thought, Hey,
1: this is kind of interesting.
8: And, and I, uh, you know, I've been uh, you know, in love with physics since that day.
1: It's an amazing book, isn't it? I mean, there's a series of three books, which you know, of yeah. famous Feynman lectures on physics. And I've seen people read that on holiday. It's, it's quite a strange in you know, a reading material to see someone reading <laughs> on holiday. But however, it's one of those books that you you pick up, and for some reason, it's compelling. Obviously,
8: that, that's <laughs> right. It starts at such a low level that anyone can understand it, and you can take it as far as you want. It goes into the deepest, some of the deepest mysteries in physics, and it's all at the undergraduate level, and I wasn't even an undergraduate and could understand maybe half of it.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Nick Kaiser, thank you very, very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. You're welcome.
3: One of the main problems with all these astronomical observations is that we get in serious amounts of data that are piling up and one of the things that we really need to do is be able to to link it all together, make it accessible for everybody that wants it. Mm. Now, one of the major uh, unfolding success stories in this area is AstroGrid, a a computer system that basically allows you to get any observations of any object you want in a very simple-to-use manner. Now, uh, Stuart, you went to speak to uh, Dr. Jonathan Tedds, didn't you?
0: I did. AstroGrid's really exciting. It's using the virtual observatory, and he told me all about it. Okay, I'm here with Jonathan Tedds of the University of Leicester. Welcome to the JODcast, Jonathan. Hello, nice to be here. Now, you're working on something called AstroGrid.
10: Tell us a bit about AstroGrid. Right, AstroGrid is a way into the Virtual Observatory. Uh, The Virtual Observatory is a worldwide effort to enable um, an astronomer anywhere in the world using a single PC to access all of the data from all of the missions, uh, as long as they're published to the VO. There are now tens of thousands such resources available through the VO. So it's a very powerful tool for accessing multiple archives.
0: This is, this is a bit of a change from how we used
10: to do things, where we had to log in to individual resources to, to download data. That's right. Uh, in the old days, you might go to um, an image server, for example, and pull down uh, an individual image of the sky from one mission. But for every different mission, you'd have to go to a different web page, uh, pull in your coordinates, get back uh, a set of images or a catalogue of objects from those, those regions of sky. These days, what you can do from the VO is essentially search all of the missions simultaneously uh, and get back either catalogue data or image data spectra um, and uh, other such services Uh, you can actually do much more complicated things as well, so once you've found the resources you're interested in uh, you can start to do complicated data mining, you can uh, launch quite complex queries where you not just say uh, is the data for an object in this catalogue or that catalogue, but you can actually say um, is the data within a specified range of a parameter and that might be position on the sky it might be uh, flux it might be magnitude in a given filter it could be all kinds of things and you can see how you can build up to much more complicated uh, science samples so it's really going to be a very useful tool for doing research yes i think it's a bit like the step uh, a step change really uh, in how you access multi-mission data uh, to the sort of equivalent of web 2.0 access you know really it's being able to go in through one entry point and access all of the data from multiple missions, multiple wavelength ranges. Uh, And this enables you to do much better science. I mean, increasingly these days, very little science is done in one single wavelength range or energy band. Typically what you do is you need to correlate data from multiple missions and multiple energy ranges. And that's exactly what we make easier using this kind of virtual observatory interface.
0: Now, at Nam this week, you've launched a new set of tools for AstroGrid, or an update to the existing
10: tools for AstroGrid. Can you just tell us a bit about those? Yeah, sure. This is um, our first public release uh, of the VO Desktop, as we call it. and This is essentially uh, a Java download. Uh, so all you need, uh, you can run this on any platform. It could be uh, on Windows, Linux, or the Mac. Um, and it's a Java tool. You just need a reasonably recent version of Java uh, and once you have this, you can sort of right-click in the usual way you would do for most software that you'd install on a PC. Um, and uh, this enables you to access a few tools. The main tool is called VO Explorer. This is the thing that's a bit like iTunes. That's right, yeah. So uh, this allows you to um, discover, explore, and browse uh, the tens of thousands of uh, data resources now available through the virtual observatory and it does it in a kind of intuitive way a rather nice visual way and it has kind of things like filter wheels just like you'd see in something like itunes but in this case it's um, allowing you to filter down on things like which wave band of data am i interested in and various other factors like that. You can enter keywords such as clusters of galaxies if that's your thing. Could could you search
0: for specific objects like, say, M31?
10: Yes, once you've selected the uh, resources and data sets you're interested in, or indeed you could search just through everything, uh, you can launch a tool called Astroscope. An astroscope allows you to enter a position on the sky in either degrees or sexagesimal, you know, which is traditional hours, minutes, seconds, and so on. And then you enter a search radius. And then having done that... So everything within,
0: say, a degree of where you...
10: Yeah, Yeah. you'd want to search on a typically a much smaller region than that, or else you'll (laughs) be overwhelmed by the amount of data that there is out there. So you'll be... uh, (laughs) (laughs) an avalanche of data will arrive. Uh, of course the data doesn't all arrive on your desktop you'll just see many many resources are available. Uh, so you don't so max w- out your broadband connection? That's right. right. Yeah. No, that's right. So, uh, but t- to get manageable returns the VO Explorer allows you to filter down and then what you do is you run this uh, astroscope. It's just a single click from the source, that you, the resources that you've chosen. Uh, and you, you then search in a given radius and what you get back is is there catalogue data there? Is there image data there, is the spectra Are there is the transient data we've now uh, built in as well and you can highlight the data of interest and it will, it will tell you what data or catalogues objects are available and you can select those and then pipe those directly into either TopCat which is a, a great tabular Manipulation and visualization tool, uh, or you could put, send images to Aladdin, and then what you can do is once you've got your image, you can overlay the catalogues you've also found on top of that image, all through single clicks, uh, because all these things are now interlinked. So and it all, are, it all are, happens under the hood. You don't have to yeah. uh, set things up in a complicated way on your machine. It's all taken care of through these. So these are all separate
0: tools. applications that are all talking to each other and sending the information between each other, so exactly you can right. display it in the way you want.
10: Yep. All you have to do is, uh, as I say, launch the VO Desktop, uh, launch TopCat, uh, launch Aladdin, and then all these tools will talk to each other. And there are actually some other tools available as well. For, uh, there's something a nice tool called Splat, which is just <laughs> like TopCat is. <laughs> actually comes from the Starlink era of software that was pioneered in the UK, uh, but it's been adapted now to work with the VO, so it's you know, taking the best tools from the Starlink era and adapting them to work with the data we have now. Uh, Splat allows you to do all sorts of complex manipulations between spectra And importantly, in the era of the VO, it allows you to transform coordinates between all these different missions so that you can plot the same, uh, on the same graph, you can plot spectra from many different missions. Yep. How can people get hold of the AstroGrid software if they want to have a play with it? Right, well, just go to www.astrogrid.org and you'll find everything you need to help you there. There's a full set of documentation and tutorials with screenshots And some nice science examples, typical things you might want to do. One thing I haven't mentioned is that you can go on to do much more complex data mining uh, using the Python language. And, in fact, soon you'll be able to do the same kind of thing using IDL and Perl. Uh, So this just enables you to do much more complex queries, uh, for example, cross-matching multiple catalogs simultaneously. And this is the kind of thing that traditionally was much more difficult to do in the past. You used to have to go to each separate archive, download the uh, data of catalogue of interest uh, and then stitch all these things back together again with different missions. Uh, it was a long and tortuous process and uh, in fact was often very difficult to achieve in practice because of the different uh, units used in different missions and so on. What we have in the virtual observatory now is a set of standards that allow you to do all these things simultaneously uh, and to be able to do it from the command line and uh, script it up in one go is will allow some exploration of brand new parameter space that people yep. haven't yet
9: probed
0: well we look forward to all this exciting science that will come from the multi-wavelength approach that we can do now with the virtual observatory and astrogrid so thank you very much for talking to us yeah uh, you're welcome thanks try it out that was dr jonathan ted so the university of leicester that was really exciting it was very much like itunes and anyway, he sort of i i can't wait for them to include podcasts on on, On the virtual observatory, so do you have
2: to put your credit card number in for AstroGrid? Is it one eighty-nine or whatever it is? <laughs> yes. so Seventy-nine pence. You can have the first thirty objects free, but the rest—the the, the rest of the objects cost
10: four ninety-nine per spectrum. That's right. <laughs>
2: AstroGrid's useful because it is it, going to make comparing data easier. But you're also going to be able to see the unusual objects. They stand out when you compare these data sets, The things that are bright in infrared but faint in X-rays, or vice versa, or whatever. Multi-wavelength. Exactly. And finding these odd, odd objects is, is usually key to understanding what's going on. And in particular, my field, trying to or one of my fields, trying to work out galaxy evolution, because the whole thing is a mess. And I think that was clear from Richard Ellis's talk earlier in the week. And um, you've talked to him.
1: One of the most exciting topics in astronomy research at the moment is galaxy formation and evolution. Now, just following the first session on the topic, I caught up with Professor Richard Ellis from the University of Oxford to tell us a little bit more. We heard a little bit about uh, cosmic downsizing today. Can you explain a little bit what we mean by yes, cosmic downsizing? Yes, We've heard okay. about downsizing in the job market or yeah. <laughs> in, well, in it's a company. A similar, it's a
11: similar thing. We used to think that galaxies grew uh, from small things, getting bigger, uh, like Lego, building bigger and bigger things as time goes on, that the very first galaxies will be quite small, uh, and then they would merge. Gravity is an attractive force. It brings galaxies together... And so we'd have a large number of little things, and then they would merge and produce a smaller number of big things. And if this was correct, then the the latest galaxies to form would be the biggest ones, and they would have formed most recently. Mm. Then astronomers in the 90s found that uh, this wasn't the case, in fact, that we found that uh, quite a long time ago there were lots of big galaxies in place, And in fact, they've stopped growing, whereas little galaxies are continuing to grow. And so this seemed the opposite of what we expected. And as often happens in science, you know, there was one camp, in this case the observers, pointing out their data and saying, something's wrong here look at the data hmm. and the theorists were saying oh no we don't believe this and how so could we be wrong how could we be wrong <laughs> and so the phrase downsizing got coined was first introduced by len cowie uh, an astronomer in hawaii and he said you know look at this the uh, the galaxies at high redshift are already there and there are big ones and as we go as time progresses most of the action switches to lower mass galaxies So what's going on? Well, firstly, the result is correct. The observers were right, and the theorists have had to regroup (laughs) and, uh, you know, eat a bit of humble pie in the process. (laughs) And now what we think is going on is that there are additional processes that govern how a galaxy grows. Firstly, we have to admit that some galaxies did collapse very quickly when the universe was young and form quite massive systems. And this is permitted within the uh, dark matter picture of the universe. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with that idea. But when a galaxy gets to a certain size, it shuts itself off. And the, the name of the game now is to try to find what is the process by which a galaxy understands that it can no longer accept any more material.
5: Mm.
11: Well, wh- what does a galaxy accrete? It accretes gas, hydrogen gas... And in order for that gas to form stars, the gas has to cool. So if you can find an engine inside a galaxy that keeps the gas hot, it will never cool and it will never form any stars. And we now think that the mechanism that prevents a galaxy from going beyond a certain size is, lo and behold, the black hole in the middle. Now, black holes have, of course, been familiar in astronomy for decades, and, but it's only quite recently that we realized that they're in every, pretty well every big galaxy. Mm. And now there's a very tight correlation between the mass of the black hole and the size of the galaxy in which it sits. So it's pretty obvious that the black hole is governing the galaxy in some way. And now we're looking for what is the means by which the black hole in the center of the galaxy tells the whole galaxy stop growing. Well, we think it's that there's a jet of activity which heats up incoming gas, either blows it away or heats it so that it can't cool and form any more stars. And this is what we call feedback, very similar to feedback in an electrical mm. circuit, that, you know, goes round and round and stops a galaxy from growing
1: anymore. This I- process of you have a galaxy with lots of gas being pulled into the black hole, it gets blown out in a in a, a jet, massive jet, jet and that in turn turns off the rest formation. of the star
11: formation and so the galaxy then becomes a red galaxy very old doesn't have any more activity and, and then as the universe expands uh, lower mass galaxies don't have such a powerful black hole and so they you know the, the feedback circuit isn't working there so they keep growing and they keep uh, forming stars and so it's the black hole to the rescue. That is the agent of
1: downsizing. Hmm. And these galaxies which are showing this feedback activity currently, they form a special class of galaxies, don't they, a special type?
11: Yes, so the galaxies that are active at the moment are a subset of the overall population. And now what's key, the key question that we're addressing here at the meeting in Belfast is the, the demographics. Take the population, how many galaxies are, are being shut off, how many galaxies are close to being shut off? <laughs> yes. How many galaxies are having a whale of a time forming lots of stars? And obviously the numbers that you see in a snapshot of time, because of course you know, we, we, can't, we don't live long enough to see any evolution in the universe significantly, the number that you see on the sky is of course a record of how long it takes for each phase to, to act. And so there's a lot of activity here at the meeting in trying to understand you know, whether we have the right picture now. But I think we're on the right track. Hmm. exciting stuff. Yeah, it is. It's, um, and, you know, black holes have long been a thorn in our side. We didn't know where they fitted in. We knew every galaxy probably had one, but we didn't know what role they played. And now we see they're central to this cosmic downsizing.
1: It's remarkable, isn't it, because we... Although we know that the black holes in the center of galaxies are so called supermassive black holes, they are very, right. very large. Right. And certainly they influence the galaxy using their gravity. However, it's not nec- directly the gravitational pool of the no. supermassive black hole which is doing this no. mechanism.
11: No. What we're learning is that there's forces other than gravity governing the history of galaxies. The the, the mistake that the theorists and all of us made in the 80s and 90, early 90s was thinking that gravity is really the force that brings together galaxies and makes them grow. Now, it's certainly true that gravity is the dominant force in the universe that brings things together but it doesn't explain everything that we understand about, for instance, galaxies that look like ellipticals, galaxies that have spiral structure like our own Milky Way, we now realize that there are other forces related to the growth of black holes and the influence that these jets have on heating the gas and preventing or inhibiting further star formation. So, it's a, you know, we're, what we're really doing is maturing the subject. We're moving into a more realistic view. Uh, of how, how
1: the universe evolved. It's a more complicated view, but we think we're getting a handle on it. Is yeah, and, and I
11: think the, the main lesson from all this is don't ignore the observers. You know, <laughs> we were right. There is a problem, and now we've, uh, you know, we've made progress in solving it, we I think. To, we well, are heading that way. We have
1: to explain reality, not just make it up. I guess. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Observations are key. Are there any other feedback mechanisms that are important in galaxy formation?
11: Yes. So very early on, when the universe is quite young, Uh, and the very first uh, feeble galaxies form, so we're now talking about very low-mass objects that really are not anywhere near the size of our Milky Way. Maybe if you know what a globular cluster is, it's a a ball of stars that typically are about a million to ten million times the mass of the Sun. Well, the very first galaxies that are collapsing when the universe is very young, 5% of its present age are about 100 million times the mass of the Sun. These galaxies are very frail. If a star forms, a massive star forms in these galaxies and eventually explodes as a supernova, the energetics of that supernova can be sufficiently powerful that it can just throw all the gas that's in that galaxy out of the galaxy, snuffing that galaxy completely. Mm. So, you know, poor thing. It's forming when the universe is very young, has a huge explosion, snuffs it out, and it it just dies. Mm. And this is what we call supernova feedback, and it can be very effective in the early universe in deciding which galaxies survive and which galaxies don't. What happens to these failed objects, we don't know. Uh, But it's quite likely that there are many more little things out there that, you know, just had a, you know, one burst of activity and then just died. And there's been a problem in astronomy for some time that if one looks around the Milky Way and the Andromeda Spiral, uh, we, although we see a lot of low-mass galaxies, we call them dwarf galaxies, uh, we don't quite see the number that theory would predict... Uh, the dark Matter theory that is, um, and one explanation for this might be that many of them just you know snuffed out very early on when the universe was quite young yeah. so there 's another form of feedback
1: the whole topic of star formation history can you explain a little bit more about what we mean by star formation history
11: yeah, so what we 're trying to determine with the star formation history of course is we 're using our telescopes as time machines to try to understand when did the bulk of the stars in the universe in the milky way if you like when did they form we have a lot of stars around us today but how old are they well of course with our big telescopes using them as time machines we can slice the universe in history and see how much star formation is going on at any particular remote point in the past and then we do this successively at different distances or hence look-back times And we can piece together when most of the stars in the universe switched on. And what we find is that there's a magic period around a redshift of two, so that's about 10 billion years ago, when the activity peaked. That is when, you know, if you like, it's the sort of teenage era, you know, (laughs) when everything happens in a galaxy. And obviously then once we know that, then of course a lot of attention focuses on that period in cosmic history you know, what's going on, which are the agents, which galaxies are growing, you know, what is the process? Why
1: then did everything just became so exciting? I guess that's the question. Why?
11: Well, we have a, it's not, you know, it is a good question, why then and not later or earlier? I mean, uh, the answer, as with so many things, is it's a toss-up between firstly, you've got to have enough time for the universe to develop hydrogen and then form big clouds of gas and then, you know, the conditions have to be right enough for those gas clouds to cool and form stars. So some of the uh, answers to that question of when really uh, relates to physical processes how long does it take a hydrogen cloud to collapse how mm-hmm. long does it take you know stars to form and so forth basically I think the cosmic star formation history or that is the history of how star formation developed is one of the triumphs of the last say five years that we've got various ways of measuring how stars the star formation rate um, for instance we can use um ultraviolet light that's very sensitive to young stars stars that are very young are very hot and they emit copiously at ultraviolet wavelengths so satellites like GALAX an ultraviolet satellite uh, launched in America uh, has been very effective at doing that but also substar formation is obscured it's in it's seen in obscured in dust clouds now if you have a hot star embedded in a dust cloud It heats up that dust, and that dust eventually glows at a much cooler temperature, a few tens of degrees Kelvin, but it will eventually escape as a black body radiation in the infrared. And the Spitzer Space Telescope has been very successful in tracing the obscured star formation. Um, So we've learned a lot of lessons over the last 10 years. Firstly, we were doing the star formation history business largely using optical and ultraviolet diagnostics, but it seems that we were missing a lot of the activity, which now the Spitzer Space Telescope has has complemented. So piecing together it all, I think we now have a pretty good understanding of when most of the stars in the
1: universe formed. It's these infrared observ- observations, which, as you say, complement the optical observations. They don't necessarily supersede them or... or no. ...or... or, or uh, no, the results, no
11: it's interesting, just sociologically, when the subject first developed, You know, the, the optical astronomers thought they had the whole scene covered, and then the infrared astronomers came along and said, you're missing all this activity. And so there's a little bit of to and froing with one side thinking the other was superior and so forth. Now we realise you need both, and they complement each other fairly well. Mm. So as often happens, and I think that's one thing that we've seen at this meeting, that astronomers are much more panchromatic. They're they're no longer cast into these partitions (laughs) of, you know, I don't consider myself an optical astronomer. I do infrared work as well. Mm. And the younger generation, which are here in in abundance at the Belfast meeting, are extremely uh, panchromatic. They'll use any facility. And that's just a delight to see. And that's really probably the biggest change in the subject over the last 10 years is astronomers, the observers, are multi wavelength
1: wonderful one last thing before i let you go and get your lunch right give us a minute or two on how you got into astronomy
11: Ah, okay. So I uh, was uh, brought up in Wales, and uh, there was a public library. And I went into the public library, and I picked up a little book called Into Outer Space by Patrick Moore. It's a little blue book. It was a story about two children who went to visit their uncle, who was an astronomer, a fictional story. And uh, I read this book, and it was really quite inspirational. I was six at the time, and I decided at that point I wanted to devour every book on astronomy in the public (laughs) library and years later maybe 45 years later i went on patrick moore's sky at night program and i told him this story about this little book and um lo and behold he found an old copy i think it was his personal copy and he signed it and sent it to me so i have this book (laughs) and i read it you know, forty-five years later, and I remembered the chapters. I Wonderful. Yeah, so it's, it had a happy ending. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you very, very much indeed. For Pleasure. Time to talk yeah, to us. We do appreciate very it very, very much yeah. indeed. Good. Last year at Nam,
3: we uh, were able to talk to Monica Grady about astrobiology, and we've, we've caught back up with her this year to find out what is going on new in this field and, uh, and what she's working on at the moment.
1: I'm joined now by Professor Monica Grady from uh, the Open University, and your position is?
12: I'm Professor of Planetary and Space Sciences at the Open University. I've been there for about three years now.
1: And your main field of research interest is astrobiology.
12: Well, sort of. I've come into this from um, one particular direction. My uh, real expertise is in laboratory-based astronomy. So this is where uh, we study meteorites that have dropped out of the sky and we try and understand from them how the solar system has formed, what the uh, influences from stars have been on the material that made meteorites. And from that and from studying organic compounds in meteorites and also particularly meteorites that have come from mars i've really got interested in astrobiology and the search for life beyond the earth so that's a sort of way into it that a few years ago i never really thought i'd be doing
1: it's fantastic going from you know following the field of uh, planetary science and uh, astronomy we've gone from just knowing about the planets our own solar system to knowing about the existence of over 270 extra solar planets people have always asked the question as uh, as to whether life exists elsewhere in the universe now we know that the planets for them to live on exist and the excitement that you mentioned about the the martian meteorite has sort of spurred things on a little bit more too you know, prior to these discoveries tell us a little bit more about the the martian meteorite
12: yeah, I mean, things have come together over the last few years in an amazing way. I mean, a few a few years ago, 10, 15 years ago, you'd have been regarded as an absolute fruitcake if you were spending your time doing research on looking for life beyond the Earth. But, as you say, um, developments in, in understanding Mars and water on Mars and especially looking and finding extrasolar planets, that's really pushed things forward. And what I've been doing for you know, several years now is studying rocks that come from mars and the way they've come from mars is an asteroid or a comet has hit mars and made a big crater on mars and the rocks that have bounced off have then fallen on the earth as meteorites and a question that i'm i'm often asked is well how do you know they're from mars how do you know they're not from the asteroid belt and the main reason is that we know this is that when they get bounced off mars they get shocked and gas from mars's atmosphere gets trapped in the rocks and we can we can melt the rocks and get that gas out again it's identical in composition to mars's atmosphere so the um, the rocks must have come from mars now having accepted that they come from mars we can say well let's study them and see what we can understand about mars from them they're all igneous rocks this means they're rocks that have melted they've come out of volcanoes or they've been they've been molten and, and solidified so they haven't been laid down in water so that tells us about mars's primary igneous history but a lot of them, although they were formed in water have been altered by water and there are minerals in them that have been broken down and turned into clay minerals and that tells us about the temperature of the water and how long the water was there for and then there are other groups of minerals that actually were laid down in water they're called carbonates and they were laid down like, like, like the chalk um, and, and limestones laid down although on Mars it was fresh water and not, not seawater and we can study those and a few years ago there was a real controversy it was 12 years ago now 1996 there was a, a discovery in a little patch of carbonates of this sort of little wiggly thing it looked like a fossil I mean it wasn't wiggling but it looked like a fossilised worm or bacterium it was tiny it was 200 nanometers, so 0.2 of a millimetre no, 0.2 of a micrometre so very very small and some scientists from America who found this thought it was a, a Martian fossil. Not many other people believe them. I mean, I don't believe it myself. But what it did was it made people really think, well, hey, you know, we've been maybe paying lip service to this idea of life on Mars, but, you know, maybe we are on the the, the edge of actually finding it. And that really has driven the stuff forward in the, the last few years. And it's been a really exciting time to be, to be working in this field.
1: It's an interesting point, though, that the first possible evidence or, or at least this, this idea that the, the little wiggly thing, the little uh, fossil uh, found in the Martian meteorite was yeah, possible evidence for, for life, although it's, it's highly disputed by, by many people, it raises an interesting point discovering this fossil uh, bacterium in the Martian meteorite or at least the alleged fossilized bacterium in the Martian meteorite raised an interesting point that the life that we're likely to come across on extrasolar planets is not going to be life like you, me, uh, the plants over there or it's likely to be bacteria or something else from the other domains of life.
12: Yeah I mean if there are really evolved creatures on other planets we'd have seen them by now you know we'd have seen rabbits or dinosaurs or whatever. So it's likely that if if life is there, it's going to be less evolved, uh, less complex, based on single cells, some type of bacterium or archaean type microorganism. Now, over the last few years, as well as learning more about extrasolar planets and possibilities of life on Mars, we've also learnt an enormous amount about life on Earth. And we've found life in many more niches on Earth than we ever dreamt of at the bottom of the ocean, in hot volcanic springs, uh, even trapped inside rocks. I mean, there's a whole set of organisms that live inside rocks, they're called cryptoendoliths which is a a long word but you can break it down, it's very logical crypto means hidden, endo is inside and lith a rock, so it's it's, organisms hidden inside a rock and there are lots of those in Antarctica and we look at Antarctica as a very cold, dry, windy place Um, and Mars is cold and dry and windy and maybe things like cryptoendoliths could live inside rocks uh, um, on Mars and That's a fascinating prospect, but it also leaves you with um, the concern of, well, how are you actually going to be able to identify them? It's going to be very, very difficult. I mean, robotically, you're going to have to get really close-up images. Well, you're going to have to strike it lucky lucky to start with to to find it. So this is one of the things where you think, well, hey, eventually we are going to have to send proper geologists there with their hammers to actually go and, and look at those rocks in great detail
1: sounds like you're asking for a ticket to mars
12: i'd love to go to to mars i'd love to go to the moon it won't happen for me but it might be for my son or my grandchildren and that's something to keep working for
1: well, we look forward to your and future generations discoveries on life on other planets While well, we are focusing largely on mars but what about um uh, the possibility of life on other planets that we know of in our own solar system and maybe not necessarily limited to planets but their satellites
12: Yeah, I mean, we've concentrated on Mars because, you know, that's the number one place to look. But there are other places. And the second favourite place is Europa, which is one of Jupiter's satellites. Now, Europa is one of the brightest objects in the solar system because it's covered in ice, which reflects uh, the sun's light back to us. That ice, though, is not a continuous sheet. It's broken up into plates, and between the plates there are other generations of ice, and there must be something below that ice to, uh, to 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 keep it moving, to keep it being built up. And it's thought that below that ice is a, an ocean of deep water, maybe a little bit salty water. And what's keeping the ocean liquid? And that uh, that's the heat of Europa's core, yeah. which is um, produced by the tug from Jupiter, gr- Jupiter's gravitational pull. And that heat has to get into the ocean somehow, and it's thought, you know, possibly like hydrothermal vents on the earth's ocean and like hydrothermal vents on the earth's ocean in the dark it was thought that there would be no life there because life on earth it was always assumed was based on photosynthesis lived near the surface and used the sun's energy but the stuff around hydrothermal vents there are no plants there but there's lots of animals and they use energy from the making and breaking of chemical bonds by um, oxidation reduction reactions rather than ultraviolet energy from the sun. And so if you've got that sort of reaction going on on the Earth's ocean floor, possibly you could have on Europa's ocean floor as well. It's a fascinating speculation and um, it's resulted in several mission proposals, both to ESA and to NASA, for missions to go to Europa and other Jovian moons to, to look for life there
1: fantastic i should say wonderful subject of study and we look forward to hearing more about it we could go on for hours i know but we have to stop it there thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us
12: it's a great pleasure thank you very much indeed bye
1: talking about life out there in the universe we also are interested in finding about the new results in the field of exoplanets now professor don palaku at queen's university belfast where we all are at the moment had some fantastic new results to announce. He discovered 10 new extrasolar planets. That was announced on Tuesday, wasn't it? Yeah, it was very, very exciting. A lot of people picked that up. So I went and had a chat with him about his new discovery. Well, thank you very much for, for giving us your time to talk to us about your very exciting discovery. This is with the SuperWASP project, so do tell us a little bit about it.
9: That's right, Nick. And I should point out, of course, this is a consortium of universities yes. with 20-odd astronomers that are involved. And the, the work to, to produce these planets is far bigger than any one person could do. Mm. You need a complete match, uh, a complete range of skills, um, and you need many people to be able to do it. Yes. Okay. Well, this is the SuperWASP uh, announcement today. Is because SuperWASP has finally come of age. Um, the announcement today is ten new transiting planets, and to get that into um, into context, there were f- thirty-five known before today. Three of them were actually uh, five of them. Sorry, were already supermass planets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've announced another ten. So that means from the forty-five that are currently known, fifteen of them are now supermass planets. Which means we are elementary maths here: thirty-three percent of the of the known amount.
1: You're staying at the corner of the market then in transiting planets.
9: I think we are, and I think what's very interesting is that if you look at our numbers of planets, if you like, thirteen of them have appeared since last summer. Mm. So, you can see that the project has been ramping up over several years and has now reached the point where we're in much more like routine operations. Is
1: that because you've gotten better at taking the observations, or is it just the sheer weight of data that has come off the telescope?
9: Um, probably both of those, and neither of them. <laughs> in as much that I think it's very easy to underestimate what we do. We take 100 gigabytes of data a night, we can't look at it by hand. We have, to, we have to have algorithms to deal with it. So we say that again? 100 gigabytes per night. Per station. Per, per night.
1: station per night. And
9: guess what? Tomorrow, we get another 100 gigabytes. <laughs> and the night after that, in the summer, in the Palmer, we can end up with three, mu- three months of photometric weather.
1: When you say that photometric person. weather, you, you mean that weather that you can take the observations at the accuracy that you require, doesn't Absolutely. It?
9: Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely.
1: So what do you do with 100 gigabytes of data per night? I mean, do you, do you have a very good relationship with hard disk manufacturers or something like <laughs>
9: that? Uh, no, I mean in, in La Palma is different to South Africa. Let me say that. I'll talk about La Palma to start with. In La Palma, we have a very good relationship with network people. So we've we've, written, we've, automated, we've automated the whole sequence of events. Now what we do is we, we take data automatically, it transfers back to Queens during the night automatically. And then at the end of the night, when it's all back here, it is reduced automatically as well. The results are then pushed to the Leicester archive automatically as well. So the actual amount of effort, I'm going to say it's not very much. The effort goes into making sure everything is running okay. And worrying that something's going to break. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> because believe me, as soon as something goes wrong, then all of a sudden you're backing up huge amounts of data. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, and you know, none of us are software engineers. None of us are engineers of any sort at all. We are astronomers um, that that just happen to have uh, uh, a bend in this kind of direction. Mm. So it's uh, it's it's quite it's, it's a lot of hard work. Reminds again
1: mm-hmm. about the telescopes themselves, the super telescopes.
9: Yeah, in principle, you can go and buy these in any shop. Well, Any shop that happens to sell you (laughs) a Canon 200mm f1.8 lens, Mm -hmm. which are now obsolete. I mean, these are beautiful lenses. Um, It's
1: basically a uh, um, telephoto lens for your camera, right? It's
9: a paparazzi lens. All right. It's got a four-inch... A long tom, so to speak. A a 200mm long tom, yeah. Uh
13: Yeah.
9: Um, The detector itself, though, that goes on the back of that is not something you would, your average Joe jug, jug public would buy because mm. they cost about 30K each, so they're yes. a bit more expensive. But they they're, they're are fantastic pieces of silicon. They're 2,000 by 2,000 pixels. They're thinned, so they're, they're 90% efficient. They're amazing pieces of kit. Mm. They're remarkable. made... They're, the the silicon is made by uh, E2V, which is a UK company, and they're packaged by a, a local company to here called Andor Scientific.
1: Mm. Okay, so how does the telescope work? Do you just have one of these uh, telephoto lenses and a camera, or describe the telescope to us?
9: Um, the telescope doesn't actually look like any telescope you would, you would recognise. Basically, we have a, an equatorial mount, like many amateurs would have, and held within that mount is a cradle, which can hold eight of these individual lens plus detector units, and they're arranged in a formation, which means they cover a big rectangle of sky. It's about 500 square degrees in each, in each viewing, if you like. Um, it covers about an hour of, of, of uh, RA and about 30 degrees of declination. That's a huge amount of sky. It's 500 square. It's huge. It is really... It's like the whole of Orion.
1: OK, now, one thing which we tend to consider when we're thinking about telescope and camera uh, instrumentation for astronomy is how big each little pixel yeah. is in the camera on the sky. How much sky do you see per pixel? Yeah. So what is that for the Super Wasp telescope? Um,
9: I'll answer it, and then I'll explain why it is the way it is. It's, uh, you won't like it. It's 14 arc seconds per pixel. Mm-hmm. right? So compared to the average seeing, which may be an arc second or two, uh, you can see these are really big pixels on the sky. But there's a good reasoning for this. What we want to do is look at lots of bright stars. Um, the effect of having big pixels like this is that we make the sky appear very bright and so we can't see very faint objects in fact one of the things that amazed me the first time we used this instrument was what happened if you did say a 2 second exposure a 10 second exposure a 50 second exposure and a 200 second exposure you don't actually see any more stars Mm. what happens is you get much more counts in the sky and the stars all start saturating right so it's quite a bizarre thing compared to an ordinary telescope. And it's because each pixel is dominated by the sky brightness. Mm.
1: So you're running at the limit of what you can achieve with the instrumentation, regardless of how deep you go, or how long you expose for. Yes.
9: And it's, it was designed specifically like this, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to measure relatively bright stars, it's 13th magnitude stars or brighter, at better than 1% accuracy. Mm. So that's... And also, what, really, what we really have to do is control all the systematic noises in the system. It's not about collecting enough photons, it's about controlling the system.
1: Understanding the instrumentation yes. so well that you yes. can see yes. what you're looking for, which That's is?
9: Right. Which is very tiny dips in star brightness over the period of a few hours.
1: Okay, and this is due to the planet, planet. transiting the, the host star. That's right, yeah. Mm. So what sort of planets have you been discovering with this technique?
9: Um well the technique is primarily sensitive to short period planets that's planets with a few periods of few days and large planets and that's because what you're doing is blocking out a bit of starlight by this planet so the bigger the planet the the deeper the the dip Mm. so to put that into context if the jupiter if you were looking at the sun from a long way away and jupiter passed in front of the sun you would get a one percent dip in brightness if the earth Got in the way. It's one ten thousandths of a percent, so it's tiny. So presumably, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be aiming to discover extrasolar planets of the mm-hmm.
1: uh, the radius of Earth with this technique using these telescopes.
9: That would be very difficult. Um, but what we can do is we can improve our treatment of noises in the data and, the, and in and in the hardware to the point where we can get down to something like a Neptune-sized planet.
13: Mm-hmm. A Neptune-sized
9: planet. Now that's interesting because Neptune is a nice giant it's a bit bigger than the largest expected rocky planet but within within reach mm. so that's what we aim, that's what we're going to aim for right what's different about uh, is there anything special about the swag of 10
1: planets that you've discovered and you're announcing today
9: yeah i mean you know we've got the usual sort of stuff we've got the hottest the shortest period planet and usually it's these sort of these sort of um uh These sort of records come and go almost every time. Um, That's not really what this is about. What this is about is a recognition that the WASP project has come of age and the planet Hall has got to the point where, I'm going to say we can do it routinely, there's nothing routine about this, but we can start announcing large numbers of planets all at once. Mm.
1: And What are we learning from these particular types of planets that you're discovering through this uh, transit technique?
9: Yeah, I think... um, we're obviously going to learn a lot more about high-mass planets. We're also beginning to understand about um, uh, structures in planets. So we have planets of the same mass which have wide, wildly different radiuses, factor of two. So you get an object that looks like, has a mass of Jupiter that is, that is considerably smaller than Jupiter, and another one that has a mass of Jupiter that is one and a half times the size of Jupiter. So something is happening internally to these stars. And we're beginning to try and understand how all this fits together. But we need more statistics. This is interesting
1: because this is what you get directly from the technique. The transit technique means you get the mass and you get the radius of the planet. You
9: get the radius. You get the radius and the mass comes out of the spectroscopy. The difference between this and the radial velocity method is because we have the orbital inclination, that's white transits, then we can actually solve Kepler's laws and the rest of the laws of motion to understand the mass and not the mass Um, or the minimum mass Mm. as you get from the radial velocity technique
1: that's one of the issues with the radial velocity technique we're looking at spectral lines in the host star wobbling backwards and forwards due to the planet going around the host star but we're not entirely sure what the angle is of the planetary orbit it could be anything from well, we don't know, we can set limits maybe but they're very very wide for for the radial velocity technique
9: there's a classic line about the radial velocity technique and it goes something like "We, we know almost nothing about the planets themselves Mm. And I think that's just phenomenal. We, we first learned about planets so around solar-type stars from this technique, and now a lot of our statistics are learned from the radial velocity technique, but we know nothing about those planets. Mm.
1: However, in contrast with the transit technique, you know that the inclination of the orbit is almost edge-on yeah. to our line of sight, obviously, otherwise yeah. you wouldn't have a transit.
9: Yeah, that's right. Mm. So it is a very powerful method, and historically, and by that I mean the last few years, There was always great promise held up by the transit method. You just went and observed a 1,000 stars, 1,000 solar-type stars, one of them would be a transiting planet. That was the idea. But the reality is dealing with the data has been very difficult, and the the planets have come very slowly. But now I think we're, we're beginning to see the end of that, and that the transit technique... Can, can rival the radial velocity technique in terms of the number of planets it can discover.
1: And you're expecting this will occur as SuperWASP continues? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> What's the next step, though, with, uh, with this technique? Are you going to build a bigger and better SuperWASP nice. or more of them? or?
9: Um, it's a good question. It's a good question. Queens have, have agreed to fund a prototype now so that we can actually start looking at technology for the next generation SuperWASP. Mm. and that may be something we do in Antarctica where we've got continuous darkness or it may be a multiple system with 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 um with smaller pixels this time so we can go a little bit fainter but then at much higher precision as well yeah so we can look at smaller objects
1: let's go back a step we mentioned the two things that we learned from the transit technique being the mass and the radius what does that tell us about the planets themselves we mentioned that the radial velocity technique doesn't tell us an awful lot but what does the transit technique give us through uh, the measurements of M and R?
9: Mass, radius, density. Uh-huh. And it's the density that you want to compare with your theoretical models.
1: Hmm. And the theoretical models presumably are those uh, around planetary formation, how the Absolutely. planets form?
9: Absolutely, yeah.
1: So what do we find from these transit planets? Well, what is the density?
9: Uh, at the moment, uh, the density again varies because we're seeing these huge variations in radius. For any particular size, and we don't really understand that at all. Some there is some some mechanism going on that is causing some of these planets, at least, to, to be to expand up. We don't really understand that. In something something like WASP three now, well, WASP three is an old one which we discovered last summer. This is
1: presumably the third transit planet found by WASP.
9: Yeah, so that was last summer, um, and now looks looks like it's back in the history books somewhere. Right? I don't think it's. I think it's still in press at the moment. Mm. Right. Um, but WAS3 is a Jupiter-sized planet, a Jupiter-mass planet, and a Jupiter-sized planet, a little bit bigger maybe. Um, but uh, uh, it's under intense irradiation from the star. It's, um, I think its, uh, it's uh, temperature is somewhere near 2,300 degrees. So that one hasn't bloated up. Hmm. So we don't really understand what's going on, but something is going on.
1: It seems quite curious, right? I mean, if you have a gas giant planet which is that close to its host star and it hasn't, the atmosphere hasn't expanded due to its you know, irradiation
9: yeah. you see there, there is something going on there's some physics going on which we don't understand and I think we're going to need to know more, we're going to have to have more objects that we can understand in detail mm. I should just say that one of the least satisfying parts of this whole game is that we don't actually ever see the planet yes. you've got to remember this, yes. we infer the existence of the planet yes. Yes. so really it's a miracle we can do anything
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's still fantastic research and we, it's highly exciting it always it's gets really, people uh, <laughs> excited about discovering planets whatever they are, yeah. whatever they look like it's, it's amazing
9: stuff you know, it's amazing we, can, we can do this kind of stuff yeah.
1: now we learned today in, in your talk about planet, planetary transits about the opposite anti-planetary transits oh, yes. now can you explain yeah. a little bit more about that I use a terrible term of anti-planetary yeah. transits perhaps you could explain it in a better way
9: yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting term, in fact. Uh, during the transit, what we actually see is a black disk of a star. Well, we don't actually see this, but what's going on is the black disk of a, of a planet obscuring a bit of light from the star. During the anti-transit, as it's become call, called, that's when the star moves across the face of the planet. Mm-hmm. So in other it's words, a planet is moving behind right. the, the, the star. Mm-hmm. And you would think that if our model of a black disk held up, then you would see no effect. But the reality is at infrared wavelengths, the planets actually radiate, I'm going to say strongly. That's not quite true. They, <laughs> they radiate energy, which comes out as infrared photons. They're hot. They're hot. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And so the planet does actually obscure some of these photons. And so during the anti transit, we see the combined light of the system get, get slightly fainter. Now, the importance of that is that um, what we're really seeing then is uh, a blockage of photons from the planet itself. Mm. So it's subtly different, but subtly important as well. Can you actually detect that? You can. It's not easy, but you can do it. At infrared wavelengths, Mm -hmm. at the moment it's been primarily done from spacecraft, infrared spacecraft like Spitzer. But there's a lot of effort going on to try and do this more routinely from the ground.
1: So we have a picture in our mind of a planet going in front of the star at transit. The planet then the planet passes in front of the star and we see a dip due to mm. photons from the star itself being blocked mm. by the planet. Then the planet moves away from the star and now we see photons from the star and also some photons from the planet reflected off the planet, Linfred yeah. wavelengths. Yeah. And then, as you say, during this anti-transit, as the planet goes behind the star, those photons which are being emitted from the planet are no longer visible
9: because Absolutely. the planets now behind the star. So you see a very slight difference. Yeah. So it's important because these are photons from the planet itself.
13: Hmm.
9: So that's quite an exciting thought when you think about it. What can we learn from those missing photons? <laughs> well, this is a good one, right? And this is slightly science fiction-y. But based in reality. Let's have it. Okay. If you think about this now, if you do this at different infrared wavelengths, and if you measure the depth of that eclipse at the the, the anti-transit time, the depth could change. If that changes, right, it's telling you something about the makeup of the atmosphere in the planet. I see where this is going. Yeah. Now, there's another thing. If you repeat those observations and you see different depths in the same at the same wave band, then that's telling you that the, that the atmosphere is changing mm-hmm. between anti-transits at the same wavelength. And there's another name for that, and that's weather. Yeah. So we, in principle, we can detect weather on these planets. Now, let's get this straight. This is pretty tough, right? <laughs> but you've got, to, you've got to dream, and you've got to have the goal to, to aim for, and I think there are people that are aiming for this, and sooner or later, we will do this. That's fantastic! It's fantastic amazing isn't research. It? It's brilliant. It's simple as well. That's what's so. good. This is accessible to people. Mm-hmm. That's what's so good about it. Thank it's you. exciting. It's exciting. <laughs> Thank you very, very much indeed
1: for taking the time to talk to us. Good, thanks.
2: The other exciting exoplanet news was from Jane Greaves and her team at the University of St Andrews. They found it's almost not yet a planet. The youngest planetoid thing yet discovered. It's a clump in a dust disk, which they believe is a, a large. Uh, greater-than-Jupiter-mass planet, just in the process of forming. So it's just a, a bunch of gas and rock. That's right, absolutely. But then so are all planets. But this is a newly-formed <laughs> bunch of <laughs> gas and rock.
1: Uh, it's, and not, it's not quite a planet, though. It's not quite a solid thing yet. It's still just a, a clumpy thing. I, I think it's a clump the in a disk. But the other
2: amazing thing from this, this is a field that was nowhere ten years ago. You know, extra old planets in dribble. But the idea of... I remember, I think it was 1997 or so... When we saw the first planetary disks around mm-hmm. stars in the Orion Nebula, that was. Now, they had this result with the clump, and they had a simulation, and the two looked identical, so there's yeah. huge progress being made.
1: I'm joined now by Dr. Jane Greaves from the University of St Andrews, and you have an exciting discovery that you've announced here at NAMM.
14: Yeah, that's right. We think we've found a protoplanet, which is basically a giant ball of gas and rocks and so on, orbiting another star, HL tau.
1: So this is, you believe, the beginning of a planetary being formed.
14: Yeah, it's not really anything like a planet at the moment in the conventional sense. We think in a million years or so it'll crunch down in on itself to become something like a very heavy version of Jupiter. Um, But at the moment it's just this giant orbiting cloud of dust and gas, basically.
1: How did you discover it?
14: We were using radio observations, so we did some of these at the Very Large Array, which is in the United States, and some of these with the Merlin Radio Telescope Array, which is in England. Um, And we were basically the first people to do this, so we we searched and got an image with very high resolution around this particular young star, and this is what we found.
1: It's interesting that you're using radio observations to make this discovery. Typically people think about optical telescopes giving us lovely pretty images, or perhaps infrared, why radio? I mean, presumably we're not detecting aliens transmitting on their uh, FM bands, uh, alien music. So how did radio observations help make this discovery?
14: Well, I have to say, alien music would be a nice thing to discover, but that wasn't it. No, this is a very unusual and new technique where you can um, look for the signal just coming from very cold rocks, basically. And they give off a kind of heat radiation, but because they're cold at very, very long wavelengths, which turn out to be in the radio. And finding the signal, which is very characteristic of rocks going around a star, is a very big clue that there's planet formation underway, which involves sticking rocks together and then piling an atmosphere on top.
1: How big are these rocks?
14: This is one of the the surprising things when we thought about it, because we normally think in terms of interstellar dust, which is particles smaller than the width of a human hair. But these particular rocks we can work out have actually grown hugely to sizes of a few centimetres. So you're talking about, you know, a pebble or something, you know, a rock the size of your fist, maybe.
1: It's remarkable that you can make the discovery of a lot of rocks, but still a lot of rocks which are reasonably small, the size of your fist.
14: Yeah, I mean it is a very surprising thing They're not very efficient emitters And you do need a lot of them there Which is why we've detected this rather supermassive planet So it'll be about 14 times the mass of Jupiter When it's finished making itself into a planet Each individual rock doesn't emit very much This is a very difficult experiment to do Why
1: are these rocks emitting anything?
14: It's basically the way you could pick up the Earth from space Rocks do just emit, it's called thermal radiation
1: And how far away is this protoplanetary system?
14: This particular star is about 500 light years away from us so it's, it's quite a long way compared to, to local space but you have to look further out into our galaxy to find these regions where young stars are forming
1: How far through is the formation scenario, this formation process as you've seen it now?
14: It's very, very early stage, which is one of the most exciting things about the observation. So the star itself is not more than 100,000 years old, so the planet can't be any older than that. And this is incredibly young in star terms. We're normally thinking a few million years old, maybe, when we talk about a young star. And the Sun is 4.5 billion years old, so it left this stage a very, very long time ago.
1: Can you repeat this technique for other systems, do you think?
14: This is something we'd really like to do. We picked HL Tau because we knew it had a very bright disc and it turned out to be more or less the only one we could do with the very large array in the States. What we're really optimistic about is the upgrade to the Merlin Array, um, which is in the UK and based at Jodrell Bank in Cheshire, obviously, as uh, lots of people know. And what, with all the new electronics and so on in place, this will be really, really sensitive. And because the telescopes are spread across half of England, basically, uh, it has a very long baseline, which makes it work effectively as one super large telescope and give us even more detail than we've achieved with the disk we've done so far so the combination of these two factors hopefully means we can do a lot more of these systems and explore the um, planetary diversity really Does this discovery
1: fit in with our understanding of how planets form? We have some theoretical ideas on how planets form Do these observations fit with how we think? They form generally
14: Yeah, there have been two theories, probably both of which I think actually happen in real space and this one relates to one that's been less considered which is a mechanism called gravitational instability. If you have a very massive disk around a star, it can have its own gravity and bits can kind of break off and do their own thing and in fact we had one member of the team, Ken Rice, Edinburgh University, did a really nice simulation to make this work in a computer and he produced an object in his model disk that's very like the one we observed so we really think, yeah, um, the theory was right, and we've actually nailed it in the data as well.
1: That's very exciting to actually be able to discriminate between two different theories on how planets form. Um, hopefully, we will see more similar systems in the future.
14: Yeah, hope so. It's an exciting time.
0: Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Okay, now the NAM has covered all scales in astronomy um, this week, from exoplanets, like we've just heard about, up to the the universe as a whole. And one of the most important results in cosmology over recent 10 years or so has been the observations of type 1A supernova, which have really showed that the universe is expanding um, faster than we thought it was. And Nick, you got up with Professor Brian Schmidt early on in the week. Yes, Professor Brian Schmidt from the Australian
1: National University talking about his research on how he's using supernovae as essentially standard candles. to work out how far away they are. And as you mentioned, the results show something very interesting. The universe, as we know, is expanding. However... And sometime in the universe's history, it started expanding faster and faster and faster. And this is down to something which we have no idea what it is, but we've given it a name, and it's called dark energy. I'm joined now by Professor Brian Schmidt from the Australia National University. And uh, over the years, you have been involved in some of the most fantastic discoveries regarding how our universe is evolving and expanding. Tell us a little bit about it.
15: I was a leader of a team that used exploding stars, which we call Type 1a supernovae, which have a pretty uniform brightness of about 5 billion times brighter than our sun. So they're, they're pretty remarkable events. And because they're so bright, we can see them across the universe. We can actually see them up to, a, right now, 11 billion light years in distance. That is, their light has taken 11 billion years to reach us. So these objects allow us to measure relative distances. These objects, when they're further and further away, become fainter and fainter, just like a light does here on Earth. And by seeing exactly their brightness, we can judge exactly how far away they are. And so when we go out and measure the uh, expanding universe, like Hubble did, the way we make that measurement in the nearby universe is we measure how far away an object is, and we compare it to how much space has stretched between us. We often call that how fast that object is moving away from us. And it turns out that object's not really moving away from us. It's actually the creation of space between us. And it looks almost exactly the same.
1: The universe is essentially moving away for us. It's not actually has its own motion necessarily. The universe itself is expanding.
15: Yeah, the universe is expanding. And so in that expansion, if we measure and compare distance to expansion rate of a nearby object, that allows us to measure how fast the universe is expanding right now. Now, when we look at one of these really distant objects then the expansion that we're seeing is in the past. We can actually look into the past of our universe and see what it was doing, you know, 10 billion years ago, for example. And when we did this and presented our results in 1998, and another team did the same thing, we both found something very peculiar, which is that the universe was expanding slower in the past, and it's expanding faster now. Now, the reason that's crazy is we know the universe is full of gravity... That is people like you and me are made up of atoms, and we have gravity, and gravity, the collective gravity of everything in the universe should slow it down. but what we saw instead was that the universe was speeding up like there 's something unknown force pushing on it, mm. so it 's sort of like taking a, a ball and throwing it up in the air and then have it take off and go into orbit that 's essentially what we 've seen mm. so it 's pretty crazy so uh, it 's the same sort of
1: anti gravity force, something blowing the universe even faster than we expected. That's
15: right. So we expected to see the universe slowing down because of gravity sort of tugging on the universe. We've seen it speeding up, and we don't really know why it's doing this, but the best guess we have is we actually go back to Einstein, who back in 1917 invented something he called the cosmological constant. It's energy that's tied to space itself. It's Mm. like every piece of space has this, this bit of energy associated with it. And it turns out if you have this in space... Einstein realized that it would cause the universe to speed up and effectively this stuff naturally pushes on itself and since it's tied to space as the universe expands you get more and more of this stuff over time you essentially get the universe bigger and bigger you get more and more of this stuff and then it can push on itself and so you end up with a universe that'll run away from itself it'll just get faster and faster over time and that seems to be what we've seen but unfortunately there's a lot of problems with Einstein's model If you go out and use particle physics techniques, you can try to estimate how big this would be caused by quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you come up with a number which is about a one with 120 zeros larger than the value we've measured. Now, that's pretty bad <laughs> measurement.
1: There's something something
15: definitely wrong there, isn't it? One would say that that's, that's considered to be the largest mistake ever made in physics. Even today, <laughs> no one's come close. So the question is, how do you get rid of that? And normally, the way you get rid of these things, when you don't know what's going on, is you assume that there's something else in particle physics that's canceling its effect out. And it's, it's very easy when you do these things to get them to cancel out exactly. It's almost impossible to get it cancel out to one, one decimal place in 120. So there, it's a big mystery of whether or not this cosmological constant really makes sense. So we're looking for other, other things to see if we can find some particle or something that's filling space and maybe changing a little bit over time that could be causing the universe to run away.
1: Are there any ideas? I mean, have, I mean th- these are theoretical particles. With, you know, we looked at uh, quantum mechanics and how the quantum mechanics of the vacuum of the universe could produce this uh, expansive force, but as you say, it doesn't, doesn't seem to fit what we actually observe. So are there any ideas on these exotic particles that could be producing this magical energy?
15: There are lots of ideas. There are thousands of ideas. Indeed, that's all we have right now are ideas. The problem with these ideas is that they can predict anything, and there's no real way to say this idea is right or this idea is wrong. And so at this point, we have theory after theory after theory that end up looking exactly the same, mm. but there's no real reason to choose one theory over the other. They're all made up. They're cartoons where people will say, I'm going to invent something, and it works. And another person says, I'm going to invent something else, and it'll work. Yeah. But there's no reason, they don't, there's nothing you can test. You can't say, "Ah, oh, this one's right because it predicted this behavior. They, they don't predict anything. Mm-hmm. So they're not real theories. They're really just a sketch, a, a guess of what's going on. And so we're really struggling right now to figure out what's going on.
1: Our best description, theoretically, of the universe and how it expands and evolves is Einstein's theory of general relativity. And he mentioned that when he came up with it, he added in where he had this cosmological constant uh, as a natural result of his calculations, his theories. However, he himself didn't like it very much, did he?
15: Well, at the time, he figured it was a necessary evil because in 1917, when he first looked at how the universe should be expanding... His his equation said the universe should be expanding or contracting, and he looked around and he thought we lived in the Milky Way, our galaxy, and there didn't appear to be any expanding or contraction. And so he had to, he was kind of scared because he knew he says, he was very attached to his his theory. So he looked and he said, "Oh, there's actually a little thing, this little constant I can add to, it, and it sort of fixes this problem." Then, when it was realized in 1929 that the universe was expanding. Um, the this term sort of disappeared, and it's mm. been reinvented by other people. But yeah, he didn't like it. He he considered it one of his biggest blunders, according to George Gamow. And so it sort of disappeared on its own because ultimately it's unnecessary. We thought it was an unnecessary thing to describe our universe, mm. and there's no real way to say why it should be there at the value, as separate through quantum mechanics, which then gives the wrong answer. So it did fade away. But now it seems to have reared its It's ugly head again, and it's been very good over the last seven or eight years of predicting what we would see. Indeed, it hasn't really put a foot wrong with the better and better measurements that we've used, using the cosmic microwave background, but also doing surveys of the galaxy, of the galaxies around our own and measuring how much gravity there is there and all these things seem to give the same answer that Einstein's cosmological constant is it. Let's go back
1: to the tool that you use to uh, describe how the universe is changing its acceleration over time. These standard candles, these supernova please tell us a little bit more about the particular type of supernova that you're using and because we understand that there are are supernovas and supernovas there's not just one flavor. Tell us a little bit more about the particular type of supernova that you use to trace the universe's evolution.
15: Our supernovae are ones which we call thermonuclear detonations. They're like giant atomic bombs. And that differentiates them from the other flavor of supernovae, which are what we call core collapse. They're big stars that collapse down into almost like black holes, and they get their energy from gravitational energy, not from from the nuclear bomb flavor. So ours are the nuclear bomb ones. And the idea is that we have stars, which we call white dwarfs, White dwarfs are the remnants of stars like our sun. When they run out of hydrogen, which they turn into helium to power themselves, the center of them collapse down to this tiny thing about the size of the earth, about the mass of the sun. So, you know, a teaspoon of material on these these things weighs a ton, Mm -hmm. for example. So these are interesting stars because when you add material to them, the stars actually get smaller. They have such strong gravity that, you know, the extra gravity makes them get smaller, and their electrons are pushing out on them against gravity. And every time you add a little bit more material, the star gets a little um, smaller, and gravity gets a little stronger. And Chandrasekhar showed that when you get to a, almost 1.4 times the mass of the sun, the next atom that you put on, gravity overwhelms electrons, and the whole thing tries to start to collapse towards a black hole but this thing is a nuclear powder keg it's full of carbon and oxygen which can be fused into iron and when you do that you get basically nuclear energy just like a hydrogen bomb does these are a carbon oxygen bomb so you have a nuclear bomb which is roughly one and a half times the size of our sun and so when they explode it ends up shining about five billion times our uh, sun's brightness for on order of a month And why can we use them as standard candles? Why are their luminosities
1: or the light output that they produce allow us to figure out how far away they are?
15: So because these things seem to explode when they reach this precise value, it turns out we think it's 1.38 times the mass of our sun, you could imagine that you have a very similar explosion each time. You put that last atom on, the thing runs away, and you have a 1.38 solar mass atomic bomb.
1: So you essentially have exactly the same amount of yeah. material, and therefore exactly the same
15: amount of energy every time one of these things goes off. Right, and if that were tr- if that were completely true, then each one of these objects would look identical. Life is not quite so simple. It turns out that these stars may be rotating. We're not really sure all the details. So there is a slight variation of about twenty or thirty percent across all types of these Type One A supernovae. But we can calibrate these. We actually look out into the universe and we see these things in the expanding universe. And we can use the expanding universe, the how much the s- space is stretched as our ruler. It's a relative ruler, it, but it's, it's quite good. And so when we do that, we can sort of tweak these things. And what we found is, is that if they expand slower, then these objects tend to be brighter than those that get brighter and fainter more quickly. And so that calibration allows us to use these things with an accuracy of about 7 or 8 percent.
1: That's a remarkable accuracy for the sort of research that you're doing. You've managed to measure how the universe starts to expand faster with uh, these these remarkable objects. When did the universe begin to expand faster and faster?
15: When we look back into time, we can see the universe sort of turn over. So you have the universe full of matter like ourselves, that gravitates. But as the universe gets bigger and bigger, that material gets diluted because the universe's volume is getting bigger and containing the same amount of of atoms. Whereas the dark energy, which is tied to space, is being created. Mm. And so we think at about five billion years ago, about the time the Earth was being formed, the dark energy started to overwhelm the gravitating matter and take over and start running the universe away and so we can sort of see that turnover five billion years ago
1: here's a tricky question because many of our listeners will probably be aware of thermodynamics and how we are always taught at school you cannot create energy however it seems the universe is doing just that with creating its own energy, which is blowing itself apart. Any
15: thoughts on why? Where is this energy coming from? Or is that just the way it is? Yeah, it turns out within general relativity, thermodynamics doesn't work quite the way people think. And so there is a way of... Not so much conserving energy, but you can conserve a quantity in general relativity. And when you do that, everything works out just fine. Everything is balanced in a general relativistic way. But it is not the normal thing. It is like this stuff's being created from nothing. But within the accounting framework of general relativity, all is well. And so it's a fairly controversial thing to figure out how to express this in in through the normal laws of general relativity but you have you know the idea is that bits of the universe are disappearing from you and you have to keep track of all that and when you do it it does seem to there, there's no real problem but it's not going to be explainable uh <laughs> in an easy way it's a very hard thing to explain even amongst the people who work on this full-time supernova are not rare
1: events we observe you know, we, we observe them routinely however it's the end of a star's life and you need to be able to discover many of these supernovae at many distances to be able to do this research. How are you capturing the data that you require to draw your conclusions?
15: A supernova in our own galaxy of 10 billion suns explodes about every 250 years. So you could imagine that if you look at 250 galaxies every day of, uh, for a year, you will eventually find a supernova. And that's more or less the technique we do. We don't look at 250 galaxies. We look at 10,000 galaxies, so we can find a lot of them. So there's, in the distant universe, that isn't so hard. Because when we look up and look a long, long ways away, within a pretty small space of a telescope's field of view, you can see 10,000 galaxies. Mm -hmm. And so you just keep taking pictures, and you'll see these things explode in one of the galaxies and monitor them. And that's how we did, we traced back the objects at five or even 10 billion years ago. Much more challenging is in the nearby universe because if you just go and take a small telescope and look in the nearby universe, there won't be a single galaxy in the average telescope's field of view mm. that you know, is, is really close. And so you have to go through and do one thing, build a new generation of telescope, um, which we're doing at Mount Stromlo, that can look at about 40 full moons worth of uh, sky at a time. That's called SkyMapper. But the way people have done it over the last 10 or 15 years is to just take and point at all the nearby galaxies and have dedicated telescopes that just keep on taking these pictures. And they've got them so they can take several thousand pictures a night now. And you have a computer process them and find the thing. And then, you know, you raise the alarm bells when suddenly you see a new object. And that has been the way that people have done it. And many amateurs, including several people here in the U.K., have been very successful at doing this at home. And so that's quite a compliment between professional surveys and these amateur surveys, I would say it's almost a 50-50 split right now in the nearby universe. Is there more work
1: to be done, or have we learned all that we're going to learn from the supernovae and the expansion of the universe?
15: Well, there's always more to learn. It's just not as easy as it has been in um, the last 10 years. And so the problem we have is that we are able now to trace back distances to 7, 8, 10 billion years to almost 1% accuracy. And then the problem is now that we're getting into what we call systematic errors, errors where we're consistently making the same mistake. Mm. And this can be caused by supernovae, for example, changing a little bit back in time, but can also be caused by just not being able to accurately deal with the atmosphere and how we measure the brightness of objects, especially as their light gets shifted to the red. That's a very challenging thing to do. And so... It becomes more and more work, and so to try to improve our measurements that we've made so far, we have to take huge amounts of data and sift through all the possible problems. And so we're doing that, and in the process we get to learn a lot about how interesting supernovae are, which is one of my favorite topics anyway. But that's what's required, is to get a more and more detailed understanding of these exploding stars so that we can gradually creep in and look for how the dark energy that's ripping the universe apart might be different from Einstein's version. At this point, we haven't seen any difference, but that's our hope, is we might.
1: That's fantastic. We wish you all the best for the future research. Now, here at the National Astronomy Meeting in Queen's University, Belfast, there's an awful lot of exciting science going on. So, apart from your own research, what do you think is the next big topic, the next exciting thing which we're learning about here at this meeting?
15: Well, there's a whole range of things, from going and finding planets by looking at monitoring millions of stars' light and seeing the planet do a transit and cause a little eclipse. It's a great way to find objects not dissimilar to our own Earth. So that's on one thing. And then another thing on the completely other end of the universe is to look at the first stars in our universe and and see how at about more than 13 billion years ago, we can see the first black holes and galaxies forming and lighting up the universe and taking the hydrogen in the universe and stripping its electron off for the first time. So we really know that's the beginning of when stars and galaxies uh, are being built. So I think those are two really exciting topics that are happening on different scales of the universe, and there's, of course, millions of things in between. And so there's there's a really, it's very exciting time in astronomy right now. Certainly is. Thank you
1: very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure.
2: I saw brian smith 's talk, and he showed the most amazing slide that I want a copy of. He had a picture of the n- notebook of Adam Rees on the page where he first worked out the result that yeah. the universe was oh, accelerating and he had his, his notes on the that 's right in fact, so he 'd done this calculation and he was trying to work out the mass of the universe. It came out as negative, so his assumption must be wrong he 'd assumed the universe wasn 't accelerating yes. and it did what any of us do. You get a result that makes no sense. And he'd put a box round it, underlined it, and put an exclamation mark. Or a question mark. That's right, yeah. And it was just what this, this? <laughs> It was just this beautiful page. And that was it. I just, it just made me think we never get the Eureka moments that we're supposed to. We people think scientists sit around stroking um, large white beards and waiting for, ah, yes, I have it. I now understand galaxy formation or whatever. <laughs> and well, that never happens? Except it did. Yeah, it did. And, but, and
1: we use it. We still use logbooks. We still actually exactly. write something in a logbook and go, oh, I don't know what this is. I'll write it down, go to sleep and maybe it'll be clear in the morning. Exactly. You
2: know? But it was only a eureka moment. That's the other thing for him because he rang Brian Smith the next day, 12 hours later. But Brian doesn't get a eureka moment He gets a You've made a mistake For God's sake <laughs> Something
0: wrong Exactly
2: Exactly. did you carry on. the minus sign Go <laughs> away and There's a nice picture Of how science evolved But I want a copy of the notebook Because I think that should go On the office wall I think that was good <laughs> Now, I like type
3: 1a supernova because it's white dwarfs misbehaving. <laughs>
1: That's a nice way to put them. Is, um, it, is it the white dwarfs that you like or the misbehavior that you like or is the connection?
3: Uh, a bit of both, I think. Yeah. But unlike normal supernova that are just stars exploding because they've come to the end of their lives.
1: Hang on, just stars
2: exploding.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah just okay. stars exploding. No, type 1a supernova, they're much more complicated. It's a system of a white dwarf with another star very nearby, and the material from that other star is, is falling onto the white dwarf and building it up in mass till it breaches that point where it can no longer hang on to itself and it undergoes this characteristic type 1a supernova, mm-hmm. much better than the regular
2: kind. Well yes, but I mean really if we're gonna get competitive about this, it's all about how big the bang is, right? And supernovae used to be the leaders in this field, but really you've got to go for a gamma ray burst yeah, if you want something wow. truly spectacular. After all, it's compulsory in all outreach about gamma ray burst to call them the biggest bang since the big one. So I've done that, and I caught up earlier in the week with Professor Niall Tambir from the University of Leicester for the latest on GRBs.
16: Gamma-ray bursts, we now think, are mainly um, events associated with the deaths of some massive stars. So these are particular, very massive stars, which, when they reach the end of their lives, they collapse due to running out of fuel in their cores... And somehow, and this is the mysterious bit, they produce, it seems, jets of very high energy um, material, plasma outflows, which uh, explode out of the star as it is simultaneously collapsing to form a black hole. And if you happen to be looking down the, uh, the barrel of one of these jets, then you see a flash of gamma rays, which is the gamma ray burst. So that's what we think. Um, but there's still a lot of details that we're, we're trying to fill in with that picture.
2: Sure. And the, you, you detect these, first of all, not surprisingly, in gamma rays, but that's done with the Swift satellite.
16: S- Swift is the satellite. Um, it's, a, it's the current generation of satellites. We've had a number over the years which have detected gamma ray bursts. And Swift is, in many ways, the most capable satellite that we've ever had in this game. And the advantage of SWIFT is that it, first of all, detects the bursts in gamma rays. It then swings round with higher magnification, more sensitive X-ray and optical telescopes. And that provides um, very accurate pictures early on in the the lifetime of the, the burst and allows us to get a very good position and to gather all sorts of data while the burst is still bright. And and learn something about them uh, that way. And it was
2: Swift, or these results from the the bursts that came from Swift, that that you pinned down this idea that these are massive stars exploding. What were the clues that gave away that origin?
16: The first clues that we got were that we were finding gamma ray bursts when we first managed to localize them at all. After they were, well, in the first instance, they were just flashes of gamma rays, we didn't know really where they were coming from. Once we managed to localise them precisely on the sky, we were able to see that nearly all the gamma-ray bursts we looked at were coming from galaxies which had very active ongoing star formation taking place in them. And so that's really a pretty good smoking gun. It's telling you that most likely it's massive stars producing gamma-ray bursts because massive stars are produced in these sort of galaxies, but they're short-lived. They don't hang around very long. So
2: where you see star formation,
16: you see them... Exactly right. And so that was the first clue. The second big clue came in 1998, 10 years ago now, when a very nearby and very strangely subluminous gamma ray burst, um, that was seen to be associated with a, a supernova, a very energetic supernova. And... Although we weren't quite sure at that time whether it was really the same kind of gamma-ray burst that we see in the more distant universe, the fact that in that particular case it clearly was coming from a supernova-like explosion, which we imagine is, is accompanying this, this massive star collapse, that um, probably that was telling us the same sort of mechanism was taking place in, in, in the distant universe. But
2: there are still some mysteries. What about this burst just a week or so ago, the, the really luminous... Sort of
16: Uh, This is a quite sensational event. It was the first time a burst has ever uh, been so bright in the optical that it would have been visible with the naked eye. Now, that may or may not mean... Anything to you, but the, what you have to realize is that this burst was around about halfway across the observable universe at the sort of distance where any quasar you like to mention, any supernova, any galaxy is far, far, far below the limit of naked eye visibility. So, this is a, an event which, even in optical light, and most of the gamma ray burst energy is coming out in other forms of radiation, but even in optical light, it was so luminous that we could have seen it naked eye. I It would be interesting to know. No one has claimed uh, to have seen it so far. It was picked up by a number of automated um, cameras. And so that's how we we know what happened. But um, it's uh, certainly all those times that people come to you and say they thought they saw an interesting flash in the sky... Um, it does now make you wonder whether they might have seen such a thing. But we, we, we know that's pretty rare, because obviously we've observed many hundreds of gamma-ray bursts now over the last few years, and this is the only one that's really produced such a remarkably intense optical flash. So
2: why was this one so
16: intense? I wouldn't say we have a clear idea yet. We are gathering... You've had two weeks. We've had two weeks. We're gathering more data on this burst, perhaps, than any previously, in all sorts of different wave bands and uh, it certainly is hoped that we, we may get a fuller understanding. What we suspect is the case is that there are a number of different emission com- components um, going on here. So the material is ejected out of the star. We don't know what started. It's, uh, it's accelerated its um, progress in the first place, but it's coming out at highly relativistic uh, velocities, very close to the speed of light. And the light that we normally see associated with gamma-ray bursts, we think, is when that outflow impacts the external gas around the, the star that pre-existed. So
2: you don't quite see the burst itself.
16: Exactly right, yeah. The, the initial burst is often rather darker and then uh, the, the brighter optical um, component uh, kicks in. In this case, there was a very bright flash that really came along with the gamma rays. It happened at the same time, and so suggests that it's probably a different mechanism is producing the the really bright optical flash in this case. We have seen one or two others rather similar over the years, never as bright as this guy, Um, and the the idea is that possibly it's what we call a reverse shock, where the, the outflowing, highly energetic material hits the external medium, And a shock wave propagates backwards down into into that outflow, and possibly, if the circumstances are just right, that can give rise to a particularly bright optical flash of this sort. As the uh, the electrons in the outflow are heated up um, by this reversing shock.
2: So, just to finish, then, what there's still plenty of mysteries. What's the one thing you'd still like to find out about gamma ray bursts?
16: There are many mysteries. Personally, my favourite uh, thing, as far as gamma-ray bursts are concerned, is, is trying to find one at very high redshifts. If we could break the redshift record uh, with gamma-ray bursts and, and see further into the universe than we've been able to by any other means, then I think that would be tremendously interesting. How far have you got so far? So far, the most distant gamma-ray burst is at a redshift of six, which puts it at about, in terms of the look-back time, about 13 billion light-years, whereas the age of the universe is about 14 billion light years so we're you know, at about a billion light years or so after the, the Big Bang if we could go let's say to a few hundred million years after the Big Bang and see events like gamma ray bursts from that time it would be tremendously exciting the thing about gamma ray bursts is because they're so luminous You both have the chance of seeing them, but you also have a chance of learning something about what the universe was like at that time, because you can gather the data, you can look at the light, and you can see what it was telling us about the the gas and the kind of galaxies that were around at that time.
1: Interesting things indeed. And speaking about interesting things, I caught up with Professor Elias Springs from the University of Hertfordshire about his survey, which is also called THINGS, the H1 Nearby Galaxy Survey. I'm joined now by Professor Elias Brinks from the University of Hertfordshire. And uh, you're here at the
5: National Astronomy Meeting to talk about interesting things. Yeah, that's right. It's a nice, uh, catchy title. Things actually stands for the H1 Nearby Galaxy Survey. So it's an acronym, but it's an acronym that uh, attracts people's attention. And that's, of course, very important. You want people to come to your talks and uh, you want to tempt them. You want to tempt the audience.
1: So, presumably, you're observing galaxies in H1. Tell us just a little bit of background about H1.
5: Yeah, first of all, it's uh, the technique that we're using is radio astronomy. We detect radio waves, and we detect radio signals from neutral hydrogen. Now, hydrogen, as uh, many of you might know, is the most abundant element in the universe, about 90% of uh, anything you see in the universe is actually made of hydrogen. And uh, hydrogen, hydrogen gas has the very nice characteristic that it sends out a signal at a very precise wavelength of 21.1 centimetre. And uh, that's what we can pick up with a radio telescope. And current radio telescopes are actually very clever in doing that. And we can get very good high-resolution maps, uh, images of the neutral gas... Um, and that neutral gas is actually stuff that floats between the stars. So whereas in the optical, you get an image of the stellar images, the stars, the photospheres of the stars that send you optical light, visible light, what we get is an image of, let's say, the complementary space, the space that's between the stars. And that's absolutely fascinating. And, of course, that gives us a whole new view of galaxies. And that's where where things come in. And as I mentioned, uh, the... Uh, radio telescopes that we have at our disposal these days they have a wonderful sensitivity, wonderful resolution, and um, we now reach the point where we get maps where we get images of the radio sky, which are getting comparable to images that we can take with optical telescopes it's not just as good, but we 're getting there.
1: How important is making observations of the
5: gas between stars in the galaxy uh, th- some of the fundamental reasons what I like to tell my colleagues is wait a second Um, in the beginning there was gas and gas is kind of like the repository the fuel and from the gas you make stars so if you want to understand stars you have to start one step back in history you have to first understand what the gas does and one of the uh, very active areas of studies uh, that the, the THINGS team is also very much involved in is how do you actually go from gas to stars? Because gas is very diffuse. It's, it's comparable to looking at clouds in the atmosphere. It's very diffuse, very dilute. And um, you were talking about a few particles per cubic centimeter, which is, which is almost a complete perfect vacuum. How do you go from such a diffuse state... ...to something which is as dense as, let's say, the sun, a star. And uh, that whole process is extremely complicated... ...but basically you have to start with gas clouds. The gas clouds have to um, condense. They have to, at a certain moment, have to become uh, molecular gas. The H1 atoms that we actually detect in the 21-centimetre H1 line... uh, ...that's atomic hydrogen. The atomic hydrogen has to form molecules. You have to get molecular hydrogen... Those clouds have to cool further. At a certain moment, self-gravity takes over, and then the whole process of star formation starts. So, what I'd like to explain my colleagues uh, is that we are actually at the very, very start of that whole sequence. Uh, uh, so, it's a very fundamental uh, study that we are performing. We really go back to the roots. How do you get stars?
1: What's the relative amount of mass contained in the interstellar gas that you're looking at in a galaxy?
5: Um, roughly speaking, just round numbers, about 10% of the visible mass. So we talk about in, in, in technical terms we talk about baryonic mass, the, 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 the visible mass that we have in stars. About, on the average, it depends very much on what type of galaxy you're looking at, but just ballpark figure, about 10% is in gas, gas gaseous form. And what exactly
1: do you measure and how do you measure it?
5: Oh, that's a very, <laughs> a very tricky question. Uh, what we measure is, uh, it's it's a spectral line, it's a transition uh, that occurs when um, the electron, which is orbiting the proton, when the electron goes from uh, a higher energy state to a slightly lower energy state, and um, uh, that transition, when that occurs, um, causes a photon, a wavelength of radio light to be emitted and that's what we pick up now how do we pick it up you have uh, a giant radio dish the photons, the light signals the radio light signals they fall on that radio dish that's, and they get reflected to a detector now that detector is very similar to an antenna an antenna that you might have on your, on your car that provides you the signal for your car radio uh, so basically that's what we have that's how we detect it
1: now, do you, you use one single dish, or do you use several?
5: It all started with a single dish. And um, the problem is that with a single dish, you get only uh, what we call a very low-resolution image of the sky. Um, you can't see sharp details. So what you want to do is you want to improve your resolution. And in order to do that, the the basic trick is to build bigger and bigger and bigger telescopes. Now, for those of you who have seen telescopes, like, for example, the Jodrell Bank dish... Um, what well is it, 76 meter diameter dish? It's a monster. Now, you might hope that that monster will actually give you a beautiful, very detailed map of the universe. Well, unfortunately, that's not the case. The reason for that is that the wavelength of the light that you're looking at is extremely large. It's 21 centimeter. And uh, it's much, much, much larger, by factors of millions, than visible light. Now, um, That is an enormous limitation, and you can imagine that it's almost impossible to build telescopes larger than the Jottero Bank dish. Mm. Um, The trick to get around that is instead of building uh, a humongous dish, which is just unaffordable and technically probably not even possible, you build a whole bunch of small dishes, you spread them out, and the largest distance between those dishes that are spread out, they will actually give you the resolution. It's called interferometry. That's the, uh, the technical term for it. Uh, you do have to give up something, and that's the collecting area. But, of course, if you build small dishes, each small dish will only pick up a little bit of light. If you build a bigger dish, you can collect more light. You're sacrificing collecting area to actually gain uh, sharpness of your image, resolution in your image. So that's, that's the trick that we use.
1: How many galaxies do you have in your survey?
5: We're looking at, uh, of the order, 34 galaxies. They're all galaxies nearby. And and when we say nearby, we talk about 10 million parsecs, which is sort of like 30 million light years. That, astronomically spoken, is in our backyard. Mm. It's the nearby, the local, the nearby universe. Have you learned anything surprising so far? Surprising in the sense that something totally unexpected, not really, because those nearby galaxies they have been looked at by other people, they are not, it's not the first time we look at them um, for people working in the field. Uh, definitely, there have been surprises, uh, there have been um, results that we did not really expect, that we did not really understand. We had to scratch our head, uh, I think we have come up with a couple of explanations which uh, certainly enrich our experience about these galaxies and uh, that have we think, we hope, will contribute to the knowledge base that we have about those galaxies. And it's not just that we want to understand these galaxies in particular. Uh, these galaxies, we use them as a, as a benchmark against which we can compare galaxies as, at much, much, much larger distances, for which we might not have the amount of detail that we can get in our own backyard so uh, they will play a very important role in understanding the universe as a whole
1: wonderful we look forward to more and better results from the survey one last question how did you get started in astronomy
5: by accident Um, i'm one of those people who never was really uh, a, a committed amateur astronomer. I always had an interest in astronomy. Of course, uh, anything that had to do with science was uh, had my interest. Uh, at school, I liked physics. Uh, I liked math, but I also liked biology. I also liked chemistry. And and at a certain moment, I had to choose what to do. And you know, as a student, when you when you're 18 year old, you have to to really decide what are you going to do with your life. It's It's tremendously difficult because you don't know what you're getting into. So when I went to uh, open days at universities and started talking to people, um, uh, the university where I actually then did my studies told me that, well, you know, when you do astronomy, then uh, you get more math than the physicists. um, You get more physics than the mathematicians. So it means you don't really have to choose between math and (laughs) physics. You can just do, you can do a bit of both and um, astronomy is kind of the vehicle with which you then then apply the, that, that knowledge. And, uh, um, well, I thought, that's interesting. I don't have to choose yet. And I started with astronomy and liked it. And, well, from one thing came the other, and I'm still doing it. And I still like it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. It is an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: And this week everyone's been dropping over acronyms trying to distinguish between ESA and ESO, um, ESO being the European Southern Observatory. And we caught it with Douglas Pierce Price of ESO to find out about the telescopes and James Bond.
17: Tell us a little bit about ESO, just remind us what ESO is. ESO is the European Southern Observatory. It's an intergovernmental organisation that uh, provides world-class astronomical facilities for European astronomers and also facilitates uh, astronomical collaborations and other projects. Our headquarters are based in in Garching near Munich in Germany, but we actually operate our sites, as the southern in our name might suggest, in the southern hemisphere, specifically in in the Chilean Atacama Desert, because it turns out that this is a fantastic place to do astronomy.
1: And the facilities that ESO operates. Can you list them off?
17: Sure. I mean, essentially, we're, we're operating observatories at, at three sites in the Atacama. So the original site is a place called La Silla, which is a 2,400-meter-high mountain. And then we have what can be described, really, as our flagship facility at a mountain called Paranal. This is slightly higher, 2,600 meters. And that's where the Very Large Telescope, or VLT, is located. So some of your listeners may already be aware of this, but it's a actually a telescope consisting of four 8.2 meter optical and infrared telescopes and also four smaller auxiliary telescopes which really makes it the world's most advanced optical observatory it's exciting it's wonderful when we think about telescopes being large we think about
1: these eight meter telescopes and that in itself a single eight meter telescope is a remarkable achievement to have a
17: telescope that large vlt is four Absolutely. It's, it's, it's fantastic, and it really is a, an extremely productive science machine for, for doing astronomy. But, of course, you say that, that 8.2 metres is large. It's large if you're talking about optical and, uh, and infrared wavelengths, but uh, as I'm sure you know, of course, at, at Jodrell Bank, the, um, when you actually want to go to, to longer wavelengths towards the radio, then actually the size of the telescopes becomes much, much larger.
1: Now, it isn't just a collection of four telescopes which comprise the the VLT. The VLT has got a, a special party trick,
17: hasn't it? Absolutely. It's what we call the VLT interferometer or VLTI. Essentially what you do is you combine the light from uh, two or three of these telescopes at a time and you can combine the light in such a way that you have some of the effect of having a single telescope as large as the combined telescopes. So, for example, if you have two telescopes a couple of hundred meters um, apart on the mountaintop, you can combine that light and you can do some of the kinds of scientific observations that you would ordinarily need a 200-meter telescope to do.
1: It's fantastic, isn't it? And this is an example of interferometry, the physical process of interferometry, aperture synthesis for the the, the aficionados in our our audience. And it's something which the the radio guys have done routinely for, for quite some time. Why is
17: it so much more difficult in optical wavelengths? The, the main thing with interferometry is you have to combine the light, uh, whether you're talking about radio waves or, or uh, infrared light, and you have to combine it coherently. In other words, you, you need to preserve the phase information. Now, this means that when you're doing this, everything has to be precise to within some small fraction of the wavelength of light. So if you've got some, some path lengths in there, if you have some separations between components or, or between the telescopes, you really need to control it down to some small fraction of the wavelength that you're concerned with. Now, if you're doing radio waves, that wavelength can be relatively long, in which case, well, it's not easy, but the technology is there to do this. As you go to infrared light, then what you have to do is these tolerances become much, much tighter. And so, again, as I say, it's certainly not easy at radio wavelengths either, but you have different technological hurdles that you have to overcome if you want to do it at infrared, infrared wavelengths. The required precision is much,
1: much higher for the optical wavelengths compared to radio, and I guess it's simply we've only just learned how to do that uh, for uh, optical wavelengths.
17: Exactly. Well, I mean, the, the VLT at the moment is doing infrared interferometry, so optical is, is even harder.
1: And another type of interferometer, which ESO is a, well, is a flagship instrument for ESO, is ALMA. Tell us a little bit about ALMA.
17: Well, Alma. This is actually what I was alluding to earlier. Where I talked about um, the telescopes getting even bigger as you go to these to, to these longer wavelengths. So, Alma is the Atacama Large Millimeter/Submillimeter Array, and the uh, the millimeter/submillimeter part of that name is referring to the wavelength that we're looking at. So, instead of looking at optical or infrared light, we're now going to what we call, say, submillimeter or millimeter radiation. So, the wavelengths are around this length. This puts you somewhere in between infrared light and, say, microwaves. The Atacama part of the name of ALMA is because we're also building this in the Atacama Desert. And the last part, the array, refers to the fact that this is also an interferometer. In other words, we have a series of individual antennas, as we call them at radio wavelengths, individual telescopes, if you want to think of it like that. But we combine them together to make a single telescope, a single machine for making our observations. Uh, but whereas the VLTI has uh, combines two or three of these telescopes... When you're uh, with ALMA, we will actually have a total of 66 high-precision radio antennas that we're spreading out over a plateau in Chile called Shahnantor. And this is, in fact, the third observational site that I referred to where ESO is working. We already have a a single-dish submillimeter telescope um, that we're operating there called UPEX, the Atacama Pathfinder Experiment. But we're currently building ALMA right now in collaboration with partners in North America and in East Asia. Now we've had radio interferometers in the past, we we spoke
1: about that earlier, and the ALMA array looks pretty similar. Why is ALMA different to previous interferometry experiments?
17: Well, in fact, the answer is, is very similar to what we were talking about before. The wavelengths that we're dealing with, although they can be thought of as, as radio waves, they're, they're very short, they're around about a millimetre. So this is uh, significantly shorter than the first, uh, the original radio interferometry telescopes that, that were built. So, again, the tolerances are much tighter. Uh, technologically, it's very difficult. The other thing is that if you want, uh, I mean, some radio telescopes, of course, can even observe through cloud, but if you want to do submillimeter astronomy the real killer is the water vapour in the atmosphere. So you have to go to a high, dry site. It turns out that the Shahnantor Plateau in Atacama is is fantastic for this. It's 5,000 metres high. Uh, It's very, very dry because the Atacama is very probably the driest place on the planet. And so there's very, very little water vapour there. The conditions are absolutely fantastic for submillimeter astronomy. They're not so fantastic for living, unfortunately. So you have very, very harsh environmental conditions. So not only do you have all of the, the tolerances of of being able to do interferometry at millimeter and sub-millimeter wavelengths to overcome, but also you just have to build these, these uh, antennas that have to live in, in really a very, very harsh environment. So it's an incredible engineering challenge, but, uh, but it's uh, going to be an absolutely wonderful telescope when it comes online. So we're observing in a new wavelength range with a new instrument, and typically that brings us new discoveries. What do we expect to learn about the universe using ALMA? So one of the things about submillimeter astronomy is that you can think of it as looking at the cold universe. If you imagine objects with temperatures of, say, several thousands of Kelvin, say, um, stars or whatever, you, you're, you're looking there at uh, optical wavelengths, at visible light. If you're looking at, say, um, particles, I don't know, dust or, or whatever, at a, a few hundred Kelvin, then you're looking typically with infrared wavelengths. But if you want to go colder than this, down to things that are a, maybe only at a, a few tens of Kelvin above absolute zero, then you go to a slightly longer wavelength again, and this puts you right in this millimeter and submillimeter regime. So ALMA astronomy is going to be, on one side, it's going to be looking at the cold universe. So we're looking at cold clouds of gas and dust out there in space, typically, for example, the clouds of gas and dust that form. <laughs> stars but another thing that we can look at is light from extremely distant galaxies from way back uh, in the early stages of the universe that has then been redshifted into this submillimeter regime so it's extremely exciting we're going to be looking in a sense at cosmic origins the origins of the universe and and also the origins of stars and therefore solar systems and 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 planets and so on
1: very exciting stuff when can we expect alma to
17: be fully operational well, fully operational will, will probably be around uh, maybe 2012-2013, but we're hoping that the, um, there could be some early science coming out of it, perhaps as early as 2010. So as I say, it's, it's under construction at the moment. We've got some of the antennas are already arriving at Shafnan Nantor. They're currently at a, an intermediate site before being moved up to the high plateau, and, and they're working now on, on checking these out and making sure that everything's going ahead. And it really is a hive of activity there. The, there's the buildings being constructed that will be forming part of the observatory. And we recently in in mid-February took delivery of a couple of fantastic beasts. They're uh, these giant yellow transporter vehicles that we use to move the antennas around because we want to be able to reconfigure the array of antennas on the plateau. We have 66 of them, but we want to be able to move some of these around to to different positions in order to improve our interferometric observations. So the problem is these antennas, each of them, well the the large ones are 12 metres in diameter so they're big radio dishes 12 metres in diameter they weigh well over 100 tons, and we want to move them, and we want to move them in such a way that we keep the precision down to once we put them back down, that we know where they are to within a fraction of a wavelength. So we've built a couple of fantastic transporter vehicles, which themselves are uh, something like 20 meters long, 10 meters wide, 6 meters high. They've got uh, huge numbers of wheels, and, and they... they trundle across the desert and they can pick up these antennas, put them on their backs, move them to a new position and put them back down again. So it's not just antennas, it's not just the telescope, but there's just all these wonderful facets of, of the observatory that are gradually coming together. That's great. That's some company vehicle. Have you, have you had a chance to drive one of these things yourself? I haven't had a chance, unfortunately, but I, I'm told that it's, uh, it's actually very easy to drive, despite the uh, technological wizardry that's gone into it, and also despite the incredible power in there. So, yeah, I'm told it's, it's pretty simple to drive, and actually it's, um, it's surprisingly nimble and, and nippy. <laughs> <laughs> you pop off down the mountain for lunch, and one of these things, I'm sure, will <laughs> create quite a stir. Well, it's prob- probably not quick enough to do that, and besides, you know, we, we need them for the telescope, but it must be, it must be wonderful to drive them.
1: You mentioned moving the elements of the array around to improve the interferometric properties of the, the telescope. Why would you want to do that? I mean, obviously, improving the, the performance of the telescope, the interferometer, is a good thing, but presumably, the further away you move the elements, the better your resolution of your interferometer. Why would you want to decrease, for instance, the size of one of the arms in the interferometer?
17: Well, essentially, it's true that, that when you, if you move the antennas further apart, then the, in principle the finest detail the finest angular resolution that you, can, that you can resolve is basically governed by the longest baseline, in other words the longest distance between, between the elements but sometimes you're not necessarily wanting just to get the fine details, as you, as you move them around you can reconfigure the array such that perhaps you're not getting the finer details but you're more sensitive to different structures on, on different angular scales in the sky, so you can think of it really as, as, as having a zoom lens, so it's great to have a telephoto lens, but you don't always want to be looking just at the finest details. Sometimes you want to be able to, to change the kind of observation you're doing. So this is one of the reasons why why we'll do this. You can reconfigure the, the telescope to make a different kind of observation.
0: Now, also at the VLT site, um, ESO have built a fantastic place for the astronomers to stay, which is called the Residencia, isn't it?
17: Absolutely. The Residencia is a, a little bit down from the mountaintop, and it's there because we have astronomers and other staff who are working at the telescope or people who are visiting the telescope. But this, this place, is in, as I say, it's in the middle of the Atacama Desert. It's the driest place on the planet. The humidity regularly drops down to 10% or below, so it's really quite unpleasant outside. It's great for astronomy, but not so great for living. And so the Residencia is like a hotel for the people to stay at, um, and it's, it really is a fantastic Building. If you you take a look at it, you'll uh, you'll see it's sort of... In order to um, avoid disturbing the area too much, it's partially buried uh, underground. And inside, when you go in, in order to keep the humidity up when you're inside the building, we have a a tropical garden and also an an actual swimming pool under a giant glass dome. And the reason we do this is to have an open body of water so that the water can evaporate into the air and keep the humidity up. So it's not just for swimming
0: and we hear that the Residencia has been used for something else quite recently
17: absolutely, we've uh, just had the James Bond film crew for the new James Bond movie Quantum of Solace have been visiting Paranal and they've been using the Residencia as one of the locations so they've been filming there and it's been extremely exciting
0: so you've had all the, all the casts that we'll see, like Daniel Craig,
17: Daniel Craig? Has, yeah, da- Daniel Craig has been there um, we, we don't know the precise details of, of exactly what, we'll, uh, w- what was being filmed of course because uh, as with all of 007's missions there's a lot of security and secrecy around well, You it. may do, but you'd have to kill us. Absolutely, absolutely. I wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> so um, so they've been using the Residencia essentially because it is such a fantastic and unusual building, and they thought this would be ideal as uh, a Bond villain's lair, essentially. we
0: we'll look forward to that. That's released at the end of October, I think, I in think the that, UK yes. and in November, in, in the rest of the world. So we'll look forward to seeing ESO's um, Residencia on that film. Thank you very much for talking to us.
17: Thank you.
2: Well, it's great to be here in Northern Ireland, and it's an area that has a long, long astronomical history, and most of that is based around the Armagh Observatory and Planetarium. To me, it was just the place that supplied posters that I could buy at Astrofest when I was a kid, (laughs) but it's also the home
0: to many of Northern Ireland's top researchers. And I go with Dr Tom Mason, the director of Armagh Planetarium, to find out what they have on offer. Welcome to the Jodcast.
13: Thank you very much.
0: And could you just tell us a bit about the planetarium that you have at Armagh Observatory?
13: The planetarium at Armagh is an, a separate institution. There's an observatory and a planetarium. observatory was founded in 1790. planetarium was opened in 1968, so it's our 40th anniversary. And we are the only big planetarium in Ireland. There are a couple of tiny ones, which are uh, less, less big. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, we are the sort of premier uh, astronomy science centre on the island.
0: And I think you've just recently refurbished the planetarium itself, haven't you?
13: Yes, we have. We spent uh, just over three million quid refitting the building, so it now has lights, heating systems and all the things you expect to work. They all work (laughs) as they should do. And we got a lot of support from the European Space Agency to put up lots of nice exhibits and more importantly we've bought a brand new projector which is a Digistar 3 which allows us to present full dome videos wow. and it's uh, oh, very spectacular the kids <laughs> love it and we've, we've run a lot of shows um, since we reopened in August 06 we have run 17 different shows and 7 of them were in-house and the, the, the rest were sort of bought in
0: Well that's very good so you produce your own in-house material Absolutely,
13: that's what we do we do in-house shows we've got a show called Pole Position which is narrated live and we have that for each of the seasons and then we have uh, a show for little people and we're starting a new one called Zula Patrol which is a bit American but we we figure the kids will love it it's full of funny dogs with snorfy noses and things (laughs) so we actually tend to differentiate our shows so that we have at the beginning of the day a show for little people and then at the end of the day another show for little people in the middle we have shows for sort of adults and children of all ages
0: very good. Um, and you also have, you were saying you have other exhibits at the observatory, what sort of things do you have? Yes,
13: we have a um, meteorite exhibit, which is the one that is is the favourite. Basically, we tell people that uh, this thing is the oldest thing you will ever touch. We have a piece of a Martian meteorite, we have a piece of the moon. So at our Planetarium, you can stand in one spot, and if you take a pace in either of three directions, a sort of 120 degree arc, uh, you can a piece of Earth, piece piece of uh, the Moon, mm. piece of Mars, and a, a nickel iron meteorite. Only place on the planet we can do that.
0: Wow, that's qu- that is quite impressive. And yeah. the, the big meteorite you have, you said I think you said earlier was outside.
13: And it's inside. actually. It inside? Yes, it's inside on a plinth. It's a nickel iron meteorite that's owned by the Ulster Museum because they're currently undergoing refurbishment. So when we were being refurbished, we worked with Andrew in the summer and did astronomy talks for a couple of summers. And now that they're shut, we're looking after a couple of their exhibits for them. And at the moment, I'm cunningly trying to work out how the devil can I replace that, because it's a very spectacular thing, you know, to be able to say, this is four and a half billion years old, you know, oldest thing you'll ever touch. Yeah. We have a tiny hammer, and if you ding it, you can, of course, it rings like a bell ah. uh, because of the, 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 the very slow cooling inside. You know, Most mm. folk don't know these things, and it's very, very spectacular. I must admit, I've never heard anyone hit a meteorite with a hammer before. Well, it's not it's a hammer. It's, I use my <laughs> rings, actually. Uh, if you use your rings, you get this lovely bell-like tone. And it's, a, wow. it's the same principle, I presume, that when you actually cast a bell on a foundry, mm. you, know, you want it to cool slowly and give a nice tongue to the bell.
0: Well, it sounds excellent. How can people find you if they've not heard of you before? Where where do they go?
13: If they drive 45 minutes south of Belfast on the motorway, heading for the south, it basically says drive for the city of Armagh. Uh, When they go down, there's an exit M11, which is the shortest motorway in the United Kingdom. and (laughs) um, They just follow the signs to Armagh, and we're quite clearly signposted. 45 minutes, no problem. But book ahead because we're actually very busy especially at weekends and we have a website www.ormaplanet.com if you are really really nice to me you could tell your audience that they could get in touch with me and i could give them a beta virtual planetarium which we're about to launch on the unsuspecting world quite soon and you can visit the planetarium virtually the reason we did it is that we do a lot of work with autistic children and I discovered that autists of course are not very keen, well some of them are not very keen to attend places where they're a bit worried about the layout and the geography and that so I su- it suddenly struck me with the virtual planetarium they can visit as many times as they want and then come to the real thing, of course they know it already they've been there, ah, very good so idea. we're trialling that out as well
0: very good. We recommend, highly recommend the Amara Planetarium to everyone, so everyone go and visit. Please do. Yes, yeah, you be very welcome. Thank you. Okay, that was Tom Mason, and I also cut up with Emily Baldwin, who has the, the rather amazing and grand title of Chief Stargazer for the Society for Popular Astronomy. Um, and I was so intrigued, I had to go and find out what she does. Hello, Emily. Hello. Thanks for being on the Jodcast. Now, you're, you have a title, the Chief Stargazer. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that is?
7: Uh, the Chief Stargazer section of this is a section of the Society for Popular Astronomy and it's aimed at young people under the age of 16 who are interested in astronomy.
0: So the Society of Popular Astronomy is a UK society for everyone?
7: It's the brightest UK society, um, has a membership of about 3,000 but the majority of those are adults so we're trying to turn the tables a bit and get young people interested in astronomy as well.
0: So what sort of things will you be doing to encourage younger people into astronomy?
7: Well, they get dedicated pages in the quarterly magazine, Popular Astronomy, and in addition to that, they've had access to Prime Space and other web resources such as Starlight. Um, So
0: Prime Space was a...
7: Prime Space was a quarterly magazine that was freely available at science centres across the UK and also with uh, Popular Astronomy magazine.
0: And Starlight is your new project, which is something similar to Prime's?
7: Yeah, Starlight is a project run by basically by Keith Cooper of Astronomy Now. Um, it's an eight-page newsletter, and the aim is to send it out to every single school. Um, and in our first batch, we sent it out to 20,000 schools. And it also went out with the latest issue, of Astronomy Now, which has a circulation of 30,000.
0: And if someone's at a school that isn't yet covered by that, how do they get hold of it?
7: You can download a free copy off the internet, which is at www.starlight news.co.uk. Okay,
0: we'll put a link to that on our show notes on our website as well. Um, thank you very much for talking to us about the, the. So this is the Chief Stargazer. Thank you very much.
7: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Stuart. And that pretty much is
1: everybody who we spoke to during NAM in Belfast. The very last talk of NAM
3: for me was a. Inspiring talk on gravitational waves by Matthew Pitkin uh, from the University of Glasgow. Now, as he was presenting his results, the you know the, the first first results from gravity waves, he said, "This is what we found," and the power died to, <laughs> to the presentation. And for 15 minutes, we, we we all sat there expecting you know great great things. And when the power came back up, the first slide was nothing yet. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so we we were expecting, but uh, but not yet, but. Uh, Some of the the large uh, gravitational wave detectors, uh, though their their sensitivity is too low to detect these these gravitational waves yet, uh, they're being left on just in case there's a supernova in the galaxy because Mm -hmm. we think that though the sensitivity is too low to detect some of the the binary stars and these other things that could produce gravitational waves, if a supernova went off, we would definitely see that with the current uh, technology that we have
1: it's remarkable to think that when we uh, consider observing the universe we observe in various wavelengths we we tend to uh tie our observations to a wavelength, so radio or infrared or optical. But we're now starting to build these instruments which allow us to see the universe in a completely new way, in a completely new light, if you like.
2: And don't forget, as well as gravitational waves and the traditional uh looking at radiation, we've also got particle astronomy. Mm. And with the detectors being Yeah, exactly. With the detectors being built in Antarctica particularly, we've got proper neutrino telescopes for the first time. So, yeah, we just need to arrange that bright supernova, because that would be excellent for neutrinos as well. They always say that a supernova goes off
3: in our galaxy once during the average person's lifetime. So if you hear there's a supernova
2: going off on the news, get outside and have a look, because it will probably be your only chance. Oh. But, but we do miss them. That's the problem. Because although it's about once every hundred years, of course, half of them will occur on the other side of the disk, and we're unlikely ever to see those, at least with light. Mm-hmm. So, that would be a... nice, though. There hasn't been one since the invention of the telescope, which seems very unfair. <laughs> We're
1: we'll, well, we'll... obviously due for one.
2: Exactly. We'll take you a break from astronomy. The highlight of every NAM is always the five-a-side football result. And here, with your full classified scores,
0: is Stuart. NAM Champions League. Edinburgh won.
2: Well, yes, they, they did win. They beat the local favourites <laughs> 2-1 in the final. So that was very succinct, Stuart. Well yes. Done. Um Actually, I'm going to give another prize to Edinburgh as well, because I, my favourite comment in a lecture for the entire week came from uh, Rita Toyero from the Institute for Astronomy in Edinburgh. Um, and I, I haven't worked out if she was joking or not, but it summed up the dilemma you have. You work all year long, and then you come here, and if you're lucky, you get a talk. Mm. And she stood up and she said, I've been working on this piece of code for a year and a half, and I'm going to spend the next minute telling you about it. <laughs> and I thought that just summed up the experience sometimes of talking at yes. one of these conferences.
1: You do wish you could spend more time impressing on your audience exactly how hard this was. <laughs> exactly. And
0: instead of saying, and right. How many late nights you had writing that code? How many bugs? your days. Bugs you never mentioned, because it's all going to look effortless. Exactly, yes.
1: This was no problem at all. It only took me a year and a half,
0: but there you go. <laughs> Very good. What other award should we Chris, we, you, know? you also spotted an excellent um, talk title.
2: Yes, that's right. Uh, this was in the cosmology session. It was and Andrew it, Ponson of the University of Cambridge. That's right. And it was, um, well, I heard it as Bianchi models and why you don't need to know about them. <laughs> <laughs> and which I thought, I, I was kind of done there and then. But it was an excellent talk, it that was. should be said. And secondly, apparently the official title was Bianchi models and why you probably don't need to know about them. <laughs> but, yeah, probably is good enough for me, at least in the realms of bizarre cosmologies. Yeah. But there were some excellent diagrams. I could read them from the back. There's a good talk. I spent most of the conference skulking in the back row, because that's where the power
0: sockets were. Yes, so, so you can find everyone with their laptops checking their emails during the conference. Or reading so, the blog. So, or, re- <laughs> or reading the, the <laughs> namblog.
3: Naturally. I think that at the end of the the session, there should have been a a sort of a a shame session where someone at the back with a photo lens would take photos of what everyone
2: was doing and then (laughs) then put a talk together about what what people were really doing during (laughs) Nam. Yes. It was very surreal in the... I mean, we talked earlier about Nam being very busy, but that meant there was an overflow lecture theatre, which I was diverted into for some of the talks. It was a very strange experience watching somebody give a talk when they're not listening they can't hear you. So people applauded at the end. Oh, that, yeah! That was like, quite no, no, no they're on a screen. <laughs> 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 yeah. You're physicists. <laughs> it? <laughs> um, but it just goes to show again how successful the, the week's been. And um, yeah, there were some. The standard of talks I thought was really high. Mm. Um, mm. And as you will notice from your interviewees, the astronomers know how to talk about their subject. Every.
3: Nam I seem to go to now has a has a talk by the Super Wasp consortium where they report that they've found yet more exoplanets, and I think this is a, a real exciting time to live in because you know not a not a year can go by without a whole host of n- new exoplanets being discovered, and the Super Wasp has found uh, five new planets since last time last time ten, they checked in. Three. Is it ten? Yeah. Well, there we go. Two different halves shows of how the good group. they are. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but they were. They were transiting planets, weren't they? That's right. Yeah. So you yeah. look for the dips in light yeah. as the planet goes in front of the star. So as a fraction of the total number of transiting planets. It was actually quite a large fraction. So yeah. I think mm-hmm. Only about forty-five, I think, have been found. That's right. And, and the the we've got ten.
2: So, and another nice planet story. I think if I'm, I seem to be giving out awards, so an award <laughs> to the people at the Liverpool Telescope for their idea for the Rise camera, which has just been installed. And Don Placco is involved in this, too. Um, It's a attempt to cheat and get to finding the first Earth-like planet before anyone else. So how do they cheat, then? Well, you look at systems which have already been discovered to have a transiting planet. So there's already, say, a Jupiter-sized thing going in front of the star. Now, of course, that should happen once every revolution. Hmm. But imagine there's an Earth in the system as well. We can't detect its effect on the star, because it's too small. But its gravitational pull will slightly change the orbit of the big planet. So you should see slight differences in timing
1: yes. of the
2: orbits of the big planet. So you, don't, so you is, don't detect
1: the transit, you detect the timing. You detect
2: the transit of the big planet yeah. and check the timings are, are on. And if it's completely regular, that's fine. If not, you can achieve, you can work out the orbit and the mm. size of the planet. And why I like this, A, it's a clever idea. B, it's quite simple. And see, this is how
0: Neptune was found. I was going not to say the, transits, the, but the outer planets. And that's also we found by looking at deviations in the orbits. Exactly. So it's very traditional astronomy, and it's high technology, so it's
1: fantastic. Excellent. My favourite talk was based on, again, what we mentioned before, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, and it was Dan Zucker from Institute of Astronomy at University of Cambridge. Now, what the SDSS has given us, as we mentioned before, was a mass of stellar information about our own galaxy. And what Dan was talking about in his talk was discovering dwarf galaxies or the rem- remnants of dwarf galaxies which have been accreted, drawn into our own Milky Way galaxy, and by some very clever choice of stars out of the catalogue, by choosing their colour in particular, you can see that they come from the same parent agglomeration of stars, same group of stars, same dwarf galaxy, which has been stretched out and stripped off, um, accreting onto our own Milky Way galaxy. And to see a picture of all the data from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey in the region of sky that it was observing, and he then showed the streams of uh, associated stars being pulled into the Milky Way. It was absolutely fantastic.
0: Was oh, this the one that has the, the great picture? Yes. The field of streams. The field of it. streams. It's a really nice picture That mm, yeah. Actually wonderful. It's on the blog. We'll Check put out link the blog. To it on the show notes as well. Yes, indeed. One of the other things that happens at Nam is that there's usually a link up with the the wider community in the area where Nam is happening, and in the evenings we have um, talks on popular astronomy, um, so there are three talks this week. I t- managed to attend one of them, which was given by Lars Lindbergh Christensen, um, or as he was referred to by the person who introduced him, Lars Christian Anderson <laughs> <laughs> which the, someone telling stories about the Hubble Space Telescope, which was quite a nice. Mix up the Did there. Did anyone go to the? There was a sci-fi talk, wasn't there? There was last night Did Did on go Thursday to that? night. No, I, I didn't go to it.
2: No, I didn't go to that. Either. Perhaps it exists in the future.
0: <laughs> possibly, possibly we'll catch up with it. Unfortunately, it was so popular that I I couldn't get a ticket for it.
13: Yeah.
0: And there was also talk on Tuesday about the Tunguska event, because of course this is the hundredth anniversary year of that event over Russia. This and is the impact, right? that
2: damaged a lot of trees and not much else because it happened down in Siberia.
1: Yep. As, as I understand, it's hard to call an impact, isn't it? Because there was never actually a crater. It was just sort of the, the meteorite came in and went bang over, mm. over a forest. There was a,
2: there was a recent claim that they discovered the crater, but for, oh. uh, for various reasons, I think that's
0: been discounted by most other people.
2: Mm. If anyone fancies wandering around Siberia looking for a crater, just let us know. Yeah, um,
0: maybe it's a good use for Google Earth. Perhaps. Go and have a look for the outline.
1: And, of course, one of the other major drawcards of the National Astronomy Meeting is the chance for folk like us to meet other folk like us. So it's been wonderful to catch up with all our friends and associates in the astronomical community, which is spread across the UK, and also catch up with you guys. So thank you very much indeed for taking a part in the JODcast. It's been fantastic. Thanks, Chris and David. Pleasure. Here's to next year. Here's to next year indeed. I can't wait. Where is it it going to be next year? Hatfield. Where's Hatfield? Hertfordshire. Lovely. It's been quite a bumper episode, I think you'll have to agree. So thank you for listening and do tune in, if that's the phrase, for the May edition of the Johncast.